Welcome to the first clanky, slithery beginnings of Robot Kraken. This is Chris, and I have a second podcast, Deeply Dapper Dispatches, and these first zero episodes are from that podcast, where Tom and I started our rambling talks and decided to break off from 3D, which is primarily horror and retro-inspired geek stuff, and start Robot Kraken, where we can go a little different direction, but still be the same rum-fueled ship of madness that you dig about Deeply Dapper Dispatches. Enjoy! Greetings, pod people. This is Christopher McClanahan reporting to you from the Fortress of Smallitude, and these are the Deeply Dapper Dispatches. Uh, Welcome to 3D Episode 8. This week we're going to discuss some television reboots of films, geeky news, Martians, and we finally get around to reviewing the Alternative Press Expo, in theory. But first, introductions are in order. As always, I am Christopher McClanahan, and joining me this week is my good friend and artist extraordinaire, Tom Chiaramonte. Did I say that right? <clears throat> yeah, that sounds fine. <laughs> I'm a reasonable artist. I'm not an extraordinary artist. You're just way too confident. Did I say extra? Oh, I did say extraordinary. Well, that's what I have typed, so I'm going <laughs> with it. <laughs> we are recording this episode on November 11th, 2015, and this marks our first bold slither into remote interview podcasting, which we've been fiddling around with for a week or so and might have it figured out. Well, the future's now. Involved. <laughs> so I am in Idaho, and Tom is in a the, prom- the promised land, unpronounceable California town. <laughs> <laughs> this starts I'm coming, with San I'm coming to you just north of San Francisco in Marin County. That's right. <laughs> the, home, the hot tubbers, according to George Bush. Yes. You remember Where George Bush? You had were to you, cover your were trees. You when George Bush was in president. <laughs> when he was president. So are, you, are you getting a frost check tonight or something? I am getting a frost check. All all of my sensitive plants have been covered by sheets. Did you cover all your sensitive shit as well? <laughs> I did. <laughs> all my sensitive shit is covered. Do you have enough sheets to cover all your sensitive shit? Yeah, it's debatable. <laughs> I'm using uh, duvets, pillowcases, doilies. <laughs> You're just out there with Kleenex. Protecting things inside the house from frost. It's, it's like, <laughs> you didn't pull out the rug from the front room and put it over something. Uh, in you? over my head, though, for sure. <laughs> and, then, and to make matters worse, I went through all that work, and then my wife came home uh, late from work, and, and then I discovered that she was out there double-checking my frost protection of the plant. <laughs> She's uh, like, your your coverage is not sufficient. I think I might have had insufficient coverage. <laughs> you like gin? It is my only weakness. So what are you drinking tonight, sir? I'm drinking a delicious whiskey. What kind of it's a whiskey? bourbon from a place called Bell Mead. Oh. It's what, um, it's what my friends here call my internet whiskey because I had to... You know, or order it remotely because I couldn't get it locally. It's my current favorite. Did it arrive in an unmarked package? It did. <laughs> As a twofer. Nice. So, yeah, it's delicious. It's what a about Bell you? Mead whiskey? That's right. Nice. I'm drinking an Obsidian Scout. Obsidian Scout. That's, That's right. A Scout. <laughs> an Obsidian Stout. I've heard about you people shoots. on Idaho that you do horrible things like that. Yeah, yeah. Those Boy Scouts are not safe in Idaho. <laughs> <clears throat> I'm not wearing any pants. Film at 11. So do you have any news to talk about, sir, with this just in? 
news. Well, I'll tell you what, there's, uh, you know, I'm kind of excited about some things coming up in the entertainment world. I don't know if you want to talk about that now or talk about it later. Let's talk about it now, brother. I've got a tip. A tip? I've got a, I've got a lead. I've got a hot lead. Tell me more. Part, which I think is going to be really interesting and take people by surprise. It's called The Star Wars. The Star Wars. And, yeah, and apparently it was very popular uh, when we were young, and it's come back in a big way, and we're going to see some really exciting stuff. It's going to be spacey. And so it's one of those science fiction films. That's right. That's what I'm told. Oh, my. There's puppets and, <gasps> and a talking dog, and then I don't know. <laughs> people in bikinis, and... You know how I feel about puppets. An ethnically diverse cast. What? I'm out. <laughs> you know, I keep trying to avoid watching all the trailers for that movie. I keep saying, okay, I've got my tickets. I was the guy that bought them in advance. I said, I'm, 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 I'm committed. I'm, right. I intend to love it to death. So I don't have to see anything or hear anything about it. And of course, you know, then, then they release something the next day that has two seconds more footage and everyone's talking about it. Right. Did you see he's holding it with his left hand or whatever? And then <laughs> and I'm like, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to see it. And then I can't, I, I can't even get through writing to, to, to one of the guys, you know, I don't, I, I, I'm, I'm in blackout on this movie. I can't even right. get through typing that before I'm like, oh, what the hell? <laughs> Your cat over your shoulder just totally freaked me out, by the way. I thought it was something moving in the background with horns. <laughs> out of first order. Yes. I, have you seen the Japanese trailer? Uh, no, that's the one I'm still holding out. Ah. I, I, have, I haven't reached 24 hours on its release, but... It has slightly more seen. footage. More than two seconds, possibly as many as three in it. Well, our buddy Blair had a blueberry and got really excited about it when he was... He's yelling me at length about how there was some sort of space physics happening in some scene in the trailer that that blew his shorts off, and, and you know, you know how I feel about space physics. Yes, it doesn't have to be very realistic, but no. he got really excited about it, and that that just <laughs> that put me over the top and told nice. me Maybe I will see this film and I will enjoy it. Nice, realistic space physics. Yes, yeah. The only th- other news beyond the the Japanese trailer is I guess they've officially released that. Leia is referred to as General Leia in it, not Princess Leia, which I think is interesting. Well, she gets respect. Yeah. She gets respect as a general. Well, and she she was kind of doing a lot of the military leading and empire and that kind of thing during the attack before they forced her to run off and kiss in hallways. Plus, she was giving out medals in the first one. Right. So, uh, here's a Star Wars related thing. Uh, I'm in the strange position of uh, indoctrinating my children in that mythos without them having seen the films yet. And they haven't seen any of them. No, we're barely on the cusp of letting uh, our older uh, kid, Zoe, who's six, uh, see Star Wars. You know, we've been sort of warming her up to some of the, the components of it that might be overwhelming for her. Right. And uh, But, you know, she's she's primed. Her friends in first grade have seen it and everyone's right. talking about of it. it. So I have these books. I showed you that one cover that was a super deformed. Yeah, I don't know what was up with that. Really strange. But anyway, they're these books that actually Mateo got as a birthday gift, but I was reading to them. And, and so I read the first of these books, and it was it was a very brief adaptation of, of A New Hope, right? <laughs> okay. And as we're going through, I don't remember if it was that one or the beginning of the Empire Strikes Back book, but 
um, she was asking these great questions like, why did the Star Destroyers look different? And I'm like, well, that's clearly that's because that's a super Star Destroyer. You see? And then I'm like, okay. Nice. <laughs> <I gotta calm. laughs> and then you know, I try to read a couple more pages in, and then she's just like, well, I don't understand probe droids. I'm like, well, you see. So it, it takes a long time because. Right. Uh, There's a lot of backstory that she would know if she'd seen the movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it got me thinking as I was reading these books to her. I'm like, I think she can handle this. And she can. she's very comfortable with the idea of ghosts. So I think she could handle Obi-Wan's ghost stuff. And, yeah. and she seems reasonably uh, um, willing to accept the, the general concept of death. So that was okay. Um, but then I started thinking about cutting open a tauntaun and using it as a sleeping bag, and I'm thinking that might be a challenge. <laughs> that is that is a bit of a dark scene if you think about it from a, a more innocent perspective. Definitely. Yeah, he hadn't slipped into Ewoks and all that yet, so it was still um, right. Well, you know, frankly, I mean, I, I think I was probably ten or so when that movie came out, and I was, I was, yeah, I, I was I'd, well in. I, I think that I'd was been born. Cool. So that was realistic. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) You know, related to that, um, we watched Inside Out because everybody was talking about how wonderful it was. And I had some concerns because it looked depressing. Right. But um, we showed it to the kids. And I tell you, Zoe just started crying like three times. Really? Yeah, they're going to take my children away. I've heard that's a pretty dark movie, honestly. Like, like sad. it's, It's really, really good. It's, you know, 11 out of 10. But, but it's serious. And I think if you're a, if you're like a, a tween or whatever they call them, mm-hmm. um, you'd be you'd be really aligned to 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 understand and feel and, and and emote and relate to it. But you know, to to my daughter, all of these metaphors about um, you know life and changing and 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 the loss of innocence and all this other stuff. I mean, she was she was vividly a, just affected by the changes in that movie, the things that were going, that the character was going through that were, I mean, they were symbolic in the way they were represented in this, in this dream world. Right. Right. With the different characters. Yeah. These, these aspects of her personality were, were falling apart and my daughter would just start crying. And (laughs) I, and I thought it was actually, it was a beautiful thing and a horrifying thing at the same time. (laughs) Cause you know, it's, it's very fourth wall to watch a movie like that with a child that's a little, you know, a little bit under, uh, the age of what it's targeting, but you know, right. it's, it's, you know, the parents in that movie are, are adjusting. They, they go through a move and they're dealing with this transition period for themselves. It's very stressful. Their daughter's 11, I think. And, you know, is going to a new school and has the insecurities and is starting puberty and has all the stuff that comes into it. And, you know, they managed to, to tell that story on several levels <laughs> so well that uh, I found it very emotionally arresting too. Yeah, I've read a lot of reviews about people who have become very emotionally overcome while watching that movie. Yeah, yeah. Mateo was making Iron Man noises through most of it. but <laughs> Well, he has a heart of stone, so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen it yet, but just sitting and listening to you describe it, it does not sound like something that would be a natural progression to a cartoon. <laughs> It was, uh, but I mean, if, you know, thinking back on the history of Disney movies, how, you know, it's, they're famously brutal, right? Every right. kid has to be an orphan. You know, this whole, you know, wartime concept that kids are are, are watching these shows and have, are probably, you know, 
experiencing a pretty tough life at that point and are relating right. to some of those serious themes. I mean, there's no, no getting around the concept of death and loss and abandonment and, and, and orphans and all this, uh, if you're a kid in the forties, right? <laughs> right, but, right. But, but, you know, you, you see that as, as a contemporary viewer and you're like, wow, the parents are gone or killed in every movie, right? Yeah. Sometimes brutally so. I mean, even something like, you know, Frozen, they have to throw it in, you know? <laughs> right. My kids, were, my kids were, like, the first viewing, they're like, oh, the parents, parents went under the water. Like that. <laughs> so, you know, the fact that this, that they've progressed to the point where you have something like this, where it's entirely about the loss of childlike innocence, um, you know, they pulled it off in a way that was very uplifting, mm-hmm. but at the same time, it's very, uh, it, it's emotionally very grounded as well. So I don't know. I think it, I thought it was fantastic. It's just, right on. It, at this point, I feel like they just, I don't even think they have to pay attention anymore when they're making these movies. I feel right. like they could just, you know, yeah, you just run it through a generator at this point and just you give it that Pixar touch, and then it's going to be amazing. <laughs> it will be excellent. <laughs> Yeah, I'm actually really intrigued by way, Moana when it comes out. I think it has a terribly unfortunate name, but yeah. I'm intrigued by it. Well, you know, anytime they, they, well, within the context of the Disney princess thing, anytime that they focus on a culture or, a, you know, a body shape or a skin color or a personality that breaks from the old, you know, I don't know, precious Barbie mold that they right. have for some so many years, I'm all for it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Every time I watch one of these, um, you know, more recent Disney films where the 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 female protagonist is something that's not the cookie cutter, um, even if they in some ways are drawn similarly, but if they're not that same, you know, whatever fresh scrubbed blonde or brunette, yeah, um, with the fa- with the fainting motion with their hand all the time, <laughs> you know. Um, I think it's really, I think as a parent, I love it. I loved that my kids are really into Lilo and Stitch and yeah, the, the, the princess and the frog and, you know, these images that, I mean, especially given that my daughter is a, a freshly scrubbed blonde <laughs> girl. Right. right. <laughs> the more different princesses that I, that she can be exposed to sound good to me. Well, and they've just done so well with giving them so much different spunk and character compared to what the old ones used to have. And the old ones were pretty spunky to begin with, but... That's sexist. You wouldn't, you wouldn't how... call male characters spunky. <laughs> I mean, you would, but it would be an entirely different podcast, right? <laughs> you old spunky character, you. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I have something that I don't know if you have heard about or not, but I think it's interesting because I believe you liked the movie that this is going to be based off of, but apparently they have announced that there will be a television series adapted from Snowpiercer. No kidding. Yeah. I was absolutely baffled that they could make a movie on the concept of Snowpiercer. And I watched it on one of the flights to Indonesia last year you know, and I had the time, right? Right. I had the time and I had the whiskey. And <laughs> I actually thought that Snow Prince was a great film. I really I've heard it's it. really excellent. They distilled a lot of great uh, sci-fi, cyberpunk stuff. They had some good characterization. There were some interesting touches to it. It has a little Twilight Zone aspect to it in a way right. about the way that the, the third act plays out. Um, and I really would love to see the director's cut. I, I, I understand it was pretty pretty badly butchered by the Weinsteins or oh, whoever really? it was. So I would love to see the original version because apparently it's even better. Now, how do you, 
how do you extend that into See, that's really my question, because, I mean, Snowpiercer was essentially, it took place on a train during an apocalyptic ice age where pretty much everybody alive is in that train, right? Um, in more ways than one, yes. Yeah, and so I don't know, um, it says it's going to be written by the Sarah Connor Chronicles and War of the Worlds writer Josh Friedman for oh, Tomorrow like Studios. Yep. Um, he also wrote a comic book adaptation of Lock and Key, which is stalled mm-hmm. as a pilot, apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, they give me absolutely no information beyond that, but that's interesting. I, I don't know if they're going to take something and maybe go to a different part and just like have it exist in the world of Snowpiercer and not actually involve the Snowpiercer somehow. <laughs> the Snowpierced. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, it's, That's it's I mean, I'd, I'd check it out, except for I have no, no time. But I mean, in general, in concept, I would. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would watch whatever they come up with on it because I like post-apocalyptic stuff that takes place in a different environment. But You'd watch it, says the guy that hasn't watched any of the shows that I tell you are great, you should be seeing. Like, well, I would, but i got to make soap, and then... It seems I like I've watched at least one or two things you've recommended. Got to repair a roof. <laughs> Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., you haven't watched that. I tried to. I just haven't got through the first episode. Well, that's understandable. <laughs> it's. I've started watching it twice now, and I'm just like, ugh, this is not what I'm in the mood for. You know... I have to say, though, about that show, it's a lot like Parks and Rec and The Office were. It took them some time to get their stride. And they yeah. were in a holding pattern waiting for the Captain America movie to come out. They couldn't do anything. So right. they were spinning their wheels being a, a, a Whedon-esque show right. until they had the chance to open it up with the events of, of Winter Soldier. And then it got really interesting. Yeah, and then it's, it's, um, it's coming better. on it's, in its interesting levels now, I think. You know, it, it has its high and highs and lows, but, but for the most part, I'm still enjoying it. Right on. I like that it exists. Yeah. Yeah, I do too. I, I, I love the the concept, and from what I've seen, I really like like the production of it and the actors involved with it. I just haven't gotten into it yet. And I was going to watch it this month, but, well, uh, in October, but October's my, my Halloween month, so I kind of forced myself to watch horror the entire month. Because that's my Christmas, and my Christmas is basically work the whole time. <laughs> Speaking of watching horror the whole month, I was going to say, I think overall, the way I would describe it is, um, you know, it's the same level of of fan service as Gotham, except they're not throwing so much money at so much nonsense as they do on Gotham. <sighs> I watch yeah. Gotham, and, and, I, you know, and, I, and I'm mildly entertained by some of the stuff. I'm committed by... Man hours, right? Like a, <laughs> right. You know, I put I'm in this much guys, time. I might as well keep it up. I'm one of those guys that watches shows even when they when they go off the rails just because I've committed already to the previous episodes. <laughs> exactly. Or like, you know, when I was collecting comics regularly, the our, the creative team would change and it would become horseshit, and I just couldn't stop. Right. I would read it and scowl the whole time. Like I must but, complete my run. Right. <laughs> so you know, Gotham. I think actually, I read a review that said that Gotham. One episode, it had gone off the rails, and the second episode, they couldn't even find the rails. And I think it was pretty true. <laughs> I See, don't even know what's happening on that show right now. I am still on the first season of Gotham. So, okay. Yeah, so I'm still... Like, I think the last one I saw was had Catgirl and Bruce having a food fight or something like that. So, Absolutely. What yeah. I wanted from that show from day one is for them to deviate from comics canon. I wanted them to go in 
their own direction, you know, like a multiverse type of thing, just right. do that how they wanted to do it. Um, and I'm, and I've seen hints that that may be the case because there are definitely aspects of the story that don't make any sense in terms of the general canon that everyone's used to, the right. aging characters, the relationship of them to each other. Um, but, you know, well, and building a whole prequel around a world without Batman that sets up a bunch of Batman stuff. Of course. Right, right. And that's one of the things that I have a problem with with this is where they they take these characters that exist that are approximately the same age as Batman or even a little younger, and they're like, well, there are 30 in this particular episode, but screw you. But they've been very, they've been clever in the second se- second season, which, which they're doing now. It's been sort of like the rogues gallery season, right? Mm-hmm. And um, they've been tweaking convention a little bit. They've been uh, um, playing with the viewer, setting you know, setting setting the viewer up thinking it's a certain thing and then pulling the rug out from under them in a fairly creative way. I don't want to talk about the details of it. I'm but, cool with that. Um, it, I, I was reasonably um, pleased with that. Um, but the other times it just feels like it's this patchwork of of just, I don't know, they, like so it's <laughs> almost like telenovas, right? I mean, right. No one's overacting and no, no one's characterization is consistent, right? Right. But, I I like the guy that I've, what's his name that's playing uh, Jim Gordon. And of course, I like um, um, Donald Logue. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Right. I like these guys, but then you know, in this episode, they're being altruistic, and in that episode, he's being a dipshit, and then in this episode, he's acting like right. a detective, and the next it's one, like they're he's being blindsided by common thugs. It's just an, you know. Yeah, I, I can't figure out if that has to do with like inconsistency. I can't talk with writers like each writer just does their own thing kind of thing and they don't have a consistent editor that comes in and is like um, that character wouldn't do that in this particular situation or what it is yeah, like even the, the few time, I've so. seen definitely have that problem yeah but you know there's no there's nothing that says that every project has to be consistent and serious right which is They're, true they seem to be treating it like a serial they mm-hmm. seem to be treating it with that sort of, you know, it's not campy, but it's very pulpy. Yeah, and we certainly have done that from a from a from a, a world building perspective, which you and I have talked about before. They've done this sort of forties <laughs> right. meets seventies meets cell phones, right? <laughs> right, what's going like... on there? But <laughs> but but I feel like maybe they they let it be this loose this this slippery snake of of continuity because. They can, right? Because that's sort of like the, right. the, the style of storytelling they're doing. I, you know, I look at projects like that and I want them to be very serious and really, really well executed and meticulously plotted. And, you know, I'm the guy, I'm the guy that was watching Lost and was heavily invested in all of my <laughs> fan theories and right. know, absolutely convinced they had a master plan for every little thing. And, you know, they were throwing logos on, Dharma logos on the backs of sharks and shit. And I was like, right. yeah, that's, you know what that means, right? right? This is going to make something happen. <laughs> uh, right. So I want, I want this, this level of, of just like flawless, uh, master planning in these projects. Um, and I choose to believe that some of my favorite projects have it. But when there's evidence that that wasn't the case, I you know I'm quick to sort of gloss over it. Like, well, you know, yeah, they, it fell apart towards the end. But right. Well, and I think there's a part of us that 
always wants that to happen in like everything. Like like yeah. Lindsay had these books when she was reading the Harry Potter books that were like like attached to the most ludicrous emphasis on the weirdest things. Like oh, she mentioned a sock in this scene. Socks are important <laughs> in the Harry Potter universe. Well, we'll have to keep an eye out for socks again later because the one elf has a sock and it's it's mate is still missing. Kind of thing. everything's a gun on a mantle. And everything's a mantle. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> My best, worst, lost uh, um, fan theory moment was when, I don't remember which season it was, the second or third, whatever, they were on the island. There was this shot where they looked up and the constellation in the sky was inverted. Interesting. And I was absolutely convinced that that was evidence of my belief that they were in a Tesseract universe, right? Oh, Okay. Since the beginning of the show, I was thinking that they had cracked through mm-hmm. some sort of fabric of, of you know, whatever, whatever, and they were on the, the other side universe. of this membrane, right? Right. And the events of their of their of their prime dimension, I guess, were on one side, and they were now on this sort of the other side of a, you know, like a two dimension world, right? right. Not multiple, but just two. And like they were on the other side of this dimensional curtain, and the fact that they were looking up and seeing. They were seeing the sky, sky from the other it, side. Suggested they were on the other side of the glass. Right? Okay. And so, um, you know, to me, it was a tesseract and all this other stuff. And uh, and then I read, like, I don't know, three seasons later or whatever it was, there was something from one of the pr- production crew that were like, wow, the fans get really into the details, especially in the DVR age, because you know, <laughs> we tweak things just for composition. Oh, no! And they, everything means something to these people. Like, yeah. When a show like Lost... They're you just like, the stars would look better if it's yeah. flipped. Yeah, I like, I like the tree on the left instead of the right. Well, guess what? That's you terrible. Establish the world where the, the clues and the nuance are in the little details, so you don't don't go fast and loose just, you know, in the editing phase and expect that people weren't going to flip out about it. Yeah. I don't know if I've ever actually found something that I've wanted to have everything planned out and plotted and all the little details and had it actually happen. I can't think of anything that's actually satisfied me in that respect. I have a good one. Uh, Arguably my favorite movie, Heat, right? Correct. From beginning to end, that thing is... Just that's true. There are a few movies meticulously that are really tight, like planned that. and executed, and the proof that it went the way he wanted it to go. I have the script of it, and with very few deviations, it's exactly as scripted. That's awesome. And on top, on, and then on top of that, it was his second go at the same material. Right? I don't know right. if you ever saw L.A. Takedown. Right? His right. first pass at the same story, and then he did Heat, and then he reconstituted again in the <laughs> TV series that he tried to do. And, you know, it, in that case, you know, he really was committed to that material. And yeah. It right. yeah. So much so that he was in a feedback loop of it, which I love. But <laughs> anyway, I think we've digressed. Yeah, we usually do. <laughs> I don't think we've ever really stayed on topic, have we? Well, there's heat and there's bourbon. So it's a typical conversation for us. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, let me see if we... I The only other thing I have written down under my news section is the word fallout with a question mark on it. <laughs> because I have nothing to say about fallout. That sounds, like a, except that sounds that like a USA Today article. You know, the children of today. Are, is your teenager falling out? <laughs> <laughs> a video game, Dad. Falling out. 
Everybody's excited about that. I saw like five seconds of gameplay, and I was like, oh, it's, yeah, it's one of those. Games. It looks like Fallout, pretty much. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the graphics are a little prettier, but, I mean, I like the Fallout games. I've only played... Well, like, I played the first one the day it came out because I was so excited about it. I bought it and booted it up on my shitty PC, and, like, I was, like, in love with that game. And Fallout 2 was really solid. And I hadn't played 3 or New Vegas until Lindsay, like, wanted to play Kingdom Hearts on a PlayStation 3 so we could get a PlayStation 3. <laughs> Got it. But, so I'm I'm a little behind the loop, but it looks like Fallout, and I think it looks fun. Which is the which is the one that our friends at WonderCon were dressed as? Uh, that's, I, I believe that's really Fallout 3 for the most part, because weren't they Vault 101? Yeah. 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 I love that imagery. I mean, everything that they were doing, to me, was this sort of post-apocalyptic um, 50s atomic, Oh yeah, yeah. Imagery it was fantastic. I love that. But and Fallout Four actually looks really solid in that respect. It looks like part of the game actually takes place in that weird retro futuristic nineteen fifties area. Like yeah. it shows like him walking around in the the pre apocalypse neighborhood with like the the cool sleek lined cars and all that shit, which looks really yeah. neat. But oh. Chris, I love games, and I don't have time to play them. Yeah, yeah. It drives me nuts. I was looking in my my box of PlayStation stuff, my, my PS3 and all the games are now in the garage, you know, so like bring it into the house when you're going to play it, which is never. Right. And I was looking in there and there were games that were unopened. <laughs> and that's just an atrocity, right? Right. In the world of console gaming, it's losing its value every day. Right. And the fact that it's unopened is is just, I mean, it's terrible. Uh, Assassin's Creed, whichever the one is, where it's there's some naval warfare in there. Oh, I got okay. that one. Haven't opened it. Um, I don't know. There's there's a couple of um, you know titles that came out in the previous few years that looked interesting, so I got them. And then uh, there was a first person shooter that was based on heists. I mean, come on. Yeah, yeah. That's that's, that's like that right up your alley. Night. Yeah. I have a window between three and three thirty a.m. I could play that. But. <laughs> Well, I think that the two of us are two people that, theoretically, we should be big video gamers, and neither of us really play video games. You, because you don't have time, and me, I've just never really found one that I've really latched onto. Like, I love the Monkey Island series and a lot of the LucasArts adventure games, and I know there's some really cool ones of those, that type of game out now, but I haven't tracked any of them down. Well, you know, I, I appreciate them. I like that they exist. I like looking at their development. <clears throat> and I even like the idea of playing them. I just don't have the time. Right. And when I do have time, then I feel like I need to be creating instead of playing. And, and that's, that's no, exactly that's my no hit on anyone who likes to play games. I mean, that's a I I love it. You know, young Tom would be amazed at what the future held. Right. right? But uh, in so many ways. But uh, <laughs> you, know, you know, if I have the, if I'm awake, I've got the kids asleep, and I have a moment, to, and I'm not just passing out. And I could play a video game and get into it. it. It's hard for me because I know I could be actually working on one of my art projects instead. Right. It's hard for me to decide which to do at a given time. Well, and that was we actually had that discussion, Lindsay and I, today about um, my writing 
and how much easier it was to write back when I had a regular full-time job and I didn't have to worry about money coming in because right. I don't make much money off of my books right now. And so for me, if I'm sitting down and writing, I should be doing art or working on a project for the shop that would be making me money more immediately. Right. And but again, there's a part of it. I think there's a psychological component to that. I think one would argue, I mean not just about whether you give yourself time to play video games, but also about how you spend your time in your creative endeavors when you've made your art a business, as you have. Right. Um, you know, I, I do, but it's not my... It doesn't put the steaks in the freezer, if I can do a heat quote for you. You get steaks. No. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I saw your Val Kilmer uh, profile pic, by the way. Anyway, um, you know, the, the idea that you have to give... What I've loved about the art jams that we do and... And, and doing small commission stuff is that it forces you out of the production that you're... My wife just popped in the room, did an eye roll, and left again. <laughs> anyway, I like those projects because it forces you, if you were doing a bunch of work that was for your business, right? Right. Your job, job, component of your artwork. And then you, and then you do a, a, a character jam, or you do a commission sketch, or you, or you do an art trade. You're forcing yourself to do something for fun instead of more product, right? Right. And that's right. why I absolutely love the fact that we've been doing that for so many years. Yeah. Give me a chance to to allow myself to 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 not be necessarily uh, profitably productive. Yeah. Yeah. But it forces you out of the box, and it's. I think anything that's creative that isn't something you normally do definitely helps you think better. Yeah. In a lot of ways. I'm actually well, kind of yeah. daunted right now because I picked up a commission to do one of those like those comic book sketch covers, yep. and he wants a, de a Deadpool. And I realize I've never actually drawn a Deadpool character because the few times that he's come up on the jam, I haven't drawn him. I haven't like, right. been able to participate in it. And I'm like... Well, you I've... saw the two that I've done total in my life. Right, right. One in, one in front of you and one and then the one I had in the can. <laughs> and, yeah, I don't much like the character... Um, and it's really hard to motivate myself to draw him. Yeah, and it's funny because I've I've read a few of his stories by authors that I really like, and I do like those. But for some reason, I just can't get into Deadpool. It's just I liked him. I liked the character in that Uncanny X Force run. Yeah. Um, once again, like everything I've been reading, you know, 2011, 2012, whatever. <laughs> right. Um, where you know the 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 writing was really interesting. The stories were actually kind of serious and. Mm -hmm. He was most interesting to me when he stopped screwing around. Yeah. So, in other words, they bled the Deadpool out of him, and I liked him more. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, it's. It, I liked his character when he had a little bit more of a balance between the the wise ass and the actual serious assassin type character, and it didn't happen very often. But I He's liked a his character. Product of the nineties, right? He I mean, really he is through and through. And I feel like the people that are still obsessed with Deadpool are the ones that loved him then. I, right. I could be wrong. Maybe there's a lot of younger readers who there's who a love tremendous that. young fan base. Yeah, mad madcap, uh, fourth wall busting, hyper violent, eating chimichangas uh, or something like is that is something that's much more common today than when they were doing it. Yeah, but it was pretty much part of its a product of its time. I think. Now, but wasn't he created by Liefeld? What didn't Liefeld create create him? I'm sure he did. Yeah. <laughs> and later I gave him feet. But so <laughs> it's the same thing with the, with the video games. The, I have all that stuff sitting in a box, right? Right. And then there'll be a, there'll be a night where 
you know, my lovely wife and I will watch something and she'll fall asleep and then I could be doing something productive or I could watch a movie or I could do one of these right. things, a long queue of things to, 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 to absorb and, I'm, and I'll realize, you know, tonight I'm going to play and I'll play video games for a couple hours. Right. To, to, to an average gamer, that's nothing. That's like a warm-up. Right, yeah, you haven't it's even finished video your game character playing yet. For the month, right? <laughs> but, I, but I have to get in that headspace where I'm like, tonight I'm just going to, I'm just going to do this completely worthless, or, or I should say, unproductive right. video game playing, um, and I really enjoy it. But then it's like, there's a part of my brain doesn't, I don't turn it off and say, I, I might get really into it, and have to force myself to turn it off and go to bed, like, ah, it's too late, I gotta go to work, or whatever. Yeah. But, but I don't wake up the next day and say, oh god, I can't wait to get back to it. Right. But in my brain, you know, the box closed again until the next month. It's a strange thing. Right. Strange thing. Well, about, I think you've uh, yeah. been forced out of necessity to do that, especially now that you've got kids and your commutes as long as it is and everything else. It's this cat over here. Yeah, yeah, you've got animals wrecking and wreaking havoc. And <laughs> all right, so what do you want? What, what? All right, let's transition. Yes, Con let's, do a, let's do a smooth transition. Should we actually talk about the alternative press expo finally? I want to. We should. I, I believe it's a thing that happened. We've finally gotten through to Ron Butler at the convention center, and I'm told that our audio hookup is now operating. Uh, Let's discuss the con. Let's discuss the con. The Alternative Press Expo. When uh, when was it held? I went to look it up, and they've changed their website already. It was it was <laughs> it was in a, it was on a day of some sort. It was. Uh, wasn't it? It was either late September or early uh, October. I know I did my my write up on the forum. Oh, you're right. It was like the first October. weekend in October, wasn't it? That's what it was. It yeah, was like October third and fourth or something like that. Yeah. Well, whatever. It's not important. Yeah. It, Early first October. weekend in October in San Jose, California, and it was so we came at this with two very from ver- two very different uh, perspectives, right? I mean, you're a guy who's you know you're doing you're doing your your these creative endeavors as your full time gig. Correct. You're going to cons all year long. Uh, you have to meet. You have to hit your numbers in order to make it um, economically viable, and with the exception of what we did. But you know what I mean, right? And, and you're also seeing cons of very different uh, scales and different formats yeah. um, for the course of your year. And this, for me, was the second convention this year that I was an exhibitor in. And previous to that, it was ten years ago that I was doing a con. <laughs> right. so, Things you know, have changed a little bit since then. Yeah, I, so I have a selection set up to, to judge by, and you have you know much more experience with it. But I'm kind of interested in. I think we should talk about how how different I think we we saw it from that way. From yeah, that yeah. Well, and it was interesting too that by the by the same token, although I've done a lot of cons, like just in the last year, I did about 23, 24 cons, I think. Um, this was a very different con than a lot of them that I've done in the past for two reasons. One, it was much more focused on the actual creators. There were no celebrity guests. There was none of that shit. Nothing real extensive that has become a Comic-Con type staple that never used to really be that. There were none of those giant booths, although there were a few booths selling comics, but they were more like slave labor graphics selling their stuff, that kind of thing. And this was like the only con of the year I did where I was like, you know, if I don't make money, 
it's okay because I'm going down to hang out with Tom and that's it will at least ameliorate some of the cost with the con, but it's like we talked about. I mean, for, for, for people listening, I mean, we, we committed to one or two cons a year, um, as an excuse to hang out pretty much. Right. Right. So we, 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 we have the table and we're selling our stuff and talking to fans and doing commissions or whatever, but we're also just bullshitting. Yeah. And we would have probably spent more money just screwing off for a weekend than doing a con weekend. So it's actually, you know, it's your money ahead, regardless of how the con does, just because, you know, you'd be, you'd be in a lot more trouble if you had that much more time to to burn (laughs) cash. Right. Right. Yeah. We would have gone to multiple more movies and God knows what else. And and instead we had basically the same conversations we would have had elsewhere, but we were sitting behind a table plying our wares as well, which in, especially for this particular con, it worked out so well for that. Like the last con we did together was Sacramento, uh, Wizard World Sacramento. And that con, was not set up for us to enjoy <laughs> or really mess. anyone <laughs> it's a hot wet mess yeah it really was well but so yeah well especially coming off the heels of that which was to me um you know a frustrating con in terms of how it was organized the yeah. changes to the venue in terms of the guests that were there the high ticket prices the the demographic that was at the con that was right. not money in money in pocket but was more you know spectators um you know, coming off of that, uh, Ape was really refreshing. And, you know, even going back to a decade ago when I was last doing this, mm-hmm. my perspective back then, it was WonderCon, WonderCon in San Francisco and then Ape. Okay. And in each case, you know, so the, the, the former was at the Moscone Center. It was at the big, big convention center in San mm-hmm. Francisco. It was much more the main, much more like San Diego and New York and, you know, like a modern much Comic-Con. more like a mainstream comic con yeah. with, and at that time, um, you know, again, 2004, 2005, the movies and, you know, the scouts for movie properties were coming in and there were booth girls and, you know, there was definitely right. a change, um, towards the mainstream that was happening then, but then, com- then contrasting it to the ape that I went to that year. Mm-hmm. And I loved Ape. I loved that it was all creator-owned stuff and small press. Yeah. Um, you know, you were talking with people, you know, as a small press creator yourself, right? You're talking to people who all have that shared experience of one way or the other. They're they're doing what they can to create the what they want to create on their own terms. Right. They've got their, so, their rough little ash cans that they printed at yeah. home and stapled. And- well, yeah. And, you know, and the fact was that the product, the the, the production quality and the creativity in the product 10 years ago, just like it was this year, mm-hmm. uh, you know, was much better than the commercial stuff, right? Because yeah. these papers of love, these really beautiful artful books, um, you know, it's like, it's like comparing a Jimmy Corrigan collection to four color <laughs> comics on the stands, right? Right. Think, right. Markets, right. One's an art book that's being collected. That's weird. And the other one is a periodical. Right. So ape was always to me about that where the product itself was a craft as well as the content, right? The The problem I had 10 years ago was that I felt like I was too mainstream supers in my, in my product mm-hmm. for a, for a con like that. Yet I was not mainstream enough for one of the bigger cons. Right. And this year I was pleasantly surprised to find that I, that I had, I had an audience. Yeah. Uh, people, you you absolutely did. Other, um, and I'm looking forward to future, um, you know, returning to this con with more creator-owned work 
where there's you know more diversity in what I have on the table. Because well, I think what you brought to this con, be... I, I, I think we should mention what you brought to the con. You brought a thick, glossy, what, 155-page art book of your character redesigns and your crypto-historic redesigns, and you brought original artwork that were the coolest collection of kind of hodgepodge... I'm going to compile this later in Photoshop, legs on corners of pages and different <laughs> characters on the backs of things. And in a way, it was really cool because it was almost artistically manic, the way your pages are laid out with the way you do your originals. What Chris is talking about is that I'm, I'm uh, uh, due, to, due to efficiency needs and, uh, and just availability of resources, uh, I tend to use... And the fact that I work digitally, you know, <laughs> right. on a final rendering is that I tend to use the raw material of the paper, the Bristol. I will draw two and three different projects on the same page, or I might do a couple on one page and a couple on the other, or I might part of one, be spitballing on one. concepts <laughs> and in some of them, and then I, or, you know, I'll have three different arm poses, and then I'll decide in composition when I'm digitally fusing them together in Photoshop what I like. I got so comfortable with that process. I'm so process oriented instead of you know, goal oriented. Right. To me, that's, that's the job of those pages is to just get something down and work with it and tweak it until I feel like inking it and then inking it and scanning it and going from there. Right. Absolutely. Never intended to be sold as art pieces. So I, as you recall, I was not anticipating anyone would have much of an interest in looking at that art. Yeah. You had a question as to whether you should even bring it. Yeah. And the collectors that got into it were really, they were excited about the fact that they would have, two or three very, very different sub- pieces of subject matter on the same <laughs> right. board, right? You know, so that was cool. Well, and, and the, one of the things I think I really liked about your half of the table was just wandering the con, which one of the pluses of Ape is that we actually got a chance to wander the con and see the other artists and that kind of thing. But I think the the originals that you were selling were such a high-quality style of illustration, and they were mainstream, but they were mainstream in a weird kind of indie way because of your compositions and the way you use the pages and all the redesigns you do that I think a lot of the people that came into that and saw these these original pages were like, oh, this is something different than pretty much everything else in this aisle kind of thing. Mm. Well, I am an artist extraordinaire, as you started with. Well, yes, of course. I, you know, I, I will say um, what was what was a blessing and a curse for me was that I made the commitment this year that I wanted to have something to bring to table with you, and so I put together the mainstream work into that art book. It's yeah. The, we, we I don't know. We haven't talked about it yet, but I I work under the name Third Rail Design Lab, so this was my TRDL tribute art book, right? So it was a collection of mainstream characters, either redesigns of those characters, uh, historical or crypto-historical redesigns of those characters, or just versions of them from, uh, you know, different different eras of the character's uh, design work, right? Right. So I, I didn't, I wasn't coming with a lot of creator-owned stuff. I, you know, I designed those, those, those different takes on these characters, but mm-hmm. they were, they were fan arts of mainstream stuff. Right. Or, you know, commissions that I had done or, or stuff that we had done in the jams. Um, and there was interest in it and especially in the original art, but Absolutely. also in the book, but it really made me fired up, you know, wishing that I had 
come out of hiatus earlier and been able to put together more of the, you know, my passion is the creator own stuff. Right. So it really made me look forward to the future when I can have more of a balance of, of, of my own properties as mm-hmm. well as the tribute art stuff that I had. This yeah, year. it was kind of interesting how little either of us had of our original like creation type stuff. And I do think that, like, this next year when we go to Ape, it'll be kind of interesting to see if either of us can actually pull our heads out of our, our <laughs> ink pots and get some creators, some creator-owned stuff actually done for us to sell there, because I do think it'd be a lot of fun. And I think both of us would benefit from being able to get some of that stuff done and organized and whatnot. I have a huge amount of work that's at what I've been saying about 80, 85%, right? Right. The books, the, all of my creator own books, the sort these character source books that I've been doing for years now, they're just, you know, a handful of art pieces have to be finished and a few now have to be redrawn because I've evolved enough that I need to be <laughs> right. changed, you know, and the, and the, the, the origin stories or the, the power sets need to be described or, you know, flushed out on some of the pages, but you know, the, the bulk of the work is done. It's about right. finishing the package. And that's where I was when I had my first child and had to put it all on hold. <laughs> and so now that my kids are old enough to actually, you know, entertain themselves and go to sleep at some point, right. I, have, I have the chance to return to that. And then after those books, um, some of the sequential art projects that I had. So that's I'm really looking awesome. forward to it. It's um, Ape, much more than uh, Wizard World. Ape was a, uh, it, it was a source of inspiration for me. Walking through and seeing what everyone was doing really put the fire in my belly. To yeah, it. it was it was an interesting mix of artists at this con. There were a lot of character artists uh, like that worked for design for animation and like little indie films, and a lot of them coming from the there's a arts institute there. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. That's right. And it seems like a lot of the people actually tabling were either graduates from there or lived in the area, that kind of thing. And there was some quality shit there. I mean, just beautiful pieces of art that were really abstract and different and just unique stuff. It's funny about the animation school there. One of my best friends uh, who was also um, at Cal Poly here uh, in California in San Luis Obispo and trained as an architect and worked as an architect in the field with me. She, some years ago, decided to go back to school and study animation, which I, which I supported, but you know, that's pretty shocking to do in your, yeah, I don't remember it was late twenties for her, but she, you know, she'd gone through all the work of, you know, being in arguably the hardest architecture school in the country and then was working in San Francisco for years and then decided to put it all aside and go back to school, right? Wow. Well, she does that. She goes to that program. She's an absolutely amazing artist. Her name is Lorraine LaBear. You can find her online. She's amazing. So she goes to the program. She comes back to the Bay Area. She's working for um, very well-known uh, um, animation houses and then uh, is now doing her own children's books. And she's just absolutely That's amazing. That's so awesome. So when I would see these young students that were at the con, mm-hmm. it was interesting to me because I was imagining her going back to school and, and these being her peers and right. You know, I, it, it was neat. I was, I could look, I could talk to, we had a lot of conversations with people at the, at the booth and you know, I could, I could easily say to them, you know, you have the capability to love what you do for your whole life. Like she's happier doing what she's doing now than she was before. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> it's a successful program and they're all really talented and it's, you know, 
sky's the limit. I think that's great. I love the fact that that school is there and that and yeah. the relationship with Ape that brings them in. Absolutely, the they- yeah. There were a lot of a lot of the attendees were students there, or or had been attend or students there. And uh, we should say that this this con in particular has a very different vibe than a standard con that you would go to. It's there are no celebrities aside from a few artists like Jonah Vesquez was there, a few people like that. There are panels, but there weren't very many panels, and weren't they in a different building somewhere? Yeah, they were right. They yeah. were decentralized panels, and they were basically by creators aimed at production. Right, right. It was how to make your own indie comic, that kind of thing. Not, uh, here's a celebrity, ask them questions about their process or anything right. like that. Um, the no con was basically all artists. There weren't really any retail booths or anything like that. Um, it, it was a very different con than what you picture in your head when you think Comic-Con now because of how much like San Diego and those have changed the landscape of comic cons in a lot of ways. Well, and the no cosplay thing was striking to me. Yeah, yeah. I'm so accustomed to the spectacle of, and and I don't want to say that in a negative way. I think you know, as someone who was making co- costumes when I was younger, I mean, I loved the right. idea that the the quality level has. I just got a George Clooney wobble in my head when I started talking about cosplay. <laughs> I don't know why that is. <laughs> but I love, the, I love the commitment. I love the quality level between 3D printing, which I know is controversial in that community. But right. you know, between that and the skill, the fact that there's enough uh, cosplayers out there that they are um, sharing their, their techniques with each right. other, resources online, and you know, the, the quality level of all that stuff is so high oh, that it's it, it puts movie, movie costumes to shame in some cases, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I love that as a concept. I love that it exists. I really hope my kids get into that. Oh, it'd be uh, It's inspiring yeah. for the future. Um, but at the same time, at Ape, it was refreshing that the people that were walking around were purely focused on talking to the creators yes. and looking at the projects and in many cases, were creators themselves. Yeah. Whereas at the main cons, with the cosplayers and the and the other, uh, you know, guests that maybe weren't as focused on the the fandom. Absolutely. Uh, the spectacle was not the tables. It was, the spectacle was what was in the corridor. Right. right. So right. I don't know. In a way, that was kind of refreshing to me. Yeah, I was amazed at how different the vibe was not having the cosplayers there, actually. And it was strange to me that, like, we didn't even see just the rogue cosplayer wandering the aisles. I think the only persons we saw in any kind of costumes were a few of the artists manning their booths wearing right. costumes and cosplay. Right. And there was the guy that we thought was dressed as the lead singer um, <laughs> Butler of Arcade Fire, but was right. really just an art student. <laughs> but I want to caveat, though. I, I feel bad about this because, you know, to be honest with you, um, the one of the big, hi- the two highlights of, of Wizard, well, the three highlights of Wizard World Sacramento were, A, getting to know our booth, our booth neighbors. Right. Um, to the um, the fact that we got to hang out, right? Yeah, There's absolutely. The reason, even though I was dying at the time. But <laughs> yeah, three, you the plague. <laughs> um, I was really, I was really pleasantly surprised by the attitude and the, and the comfort level of the cosplayers that they wanted, you know, they were there to be photographed. They were, they would get into the pose and I got, Absolutely. I went into it feeling like, well, I don't want to take any photos. It's very, you know, I don't know. Uh, it's a strange, I, mental... I don't know. It feels weird. I don't want to take, I don't want the, 
girl in the the Vampirella costume <laughs> wiggling her ass at me and me taking a photo. It just feels wrong, right? Right. But at the same time, when we got there and we were there for a while, I realized that the it didn't have to be that way. Right. That was the impression I had always gotten after the, in these past ten years, where I haven't been going to cons that. That it was, you know, cute girls dressing up in these outfits and then weird, sweaty older guys with cameras <laughs> focusing on them. I don't know. So anyway, I brought my own baggage to the con. Right. When we met several cosplayers who were really cool. Amazing people. Was, they were yeah. a lot of different personalities. They would come back to us, right, and talk yeah. to us times over the course of the weekend. They were they would talk. Remember how we would have conversations about the craft of their costuming oh, and absolutely. what the inspiration was? and I thought that was fantastic. Yeah. So I actually, I'm very pro cosplay now. Compared yeah, to we that. love cosplayers. Um, it was, I don't think they would have fit at Ape, but yeah. I think cosplayers are phenomenal. And it is funny that you get this, this weird mental state where when you first walk into a con, like my cousin went to a con for the first time when he came to Salt Lake Comic Con with us. And I was like, We'd walk down an aisle and he'd see somebody dressed up as something he likes, and he would say, "Oh my gosh, I oh that that costume's so cool! I wish I could remember what that looked like." And I'm like, "Go ask him for a photo, dude." And he's like, "No, no, no, no! I don't want to ask it. That'd be weird." And by the end of the con, he was just snap, 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 snap. And it's it's funny because you do get into this thing where you don't realize that to the cosplayers, this is a form of theater for them. This is them exhibiting their artwork, their skill, their talent their acting abilities and they want you to appreciate that in a respectful manner of course well and that's the thing i think that from the outside uh the sensationalist aspect of it tends to focus on the over sexualization of some of the costumes and the way that the, the the really slippery slope which we've read a lot about in the last few years about um you know women at these conventions that are um you know, pressured and taken advantage of right. um, because they're in a, in a costume and because maybe it's a revealing outfit. Well, why is it suddenly different if someone's dressed as a Scarlet Witch or someone is dressed the way they want to dress and walking down the street? Exactly. Um, you know, that, that abusive attitude about um, approaching them is wrong in all contexts. And right. There was so much, the fact that it was coming to light and being talked about and being exposed and people were willing to talk about it so much in the last few years, I kind of had that sort of negative bias about it. Like, right. Well, Having you, not actually been to one and experienced yeah. the actual experience of cosplaying. And I saw very little of that at Wizard World, I have to say. Um, it was it was pretty above board, and I liked that. But yeah. mostly, I like the fact that it's not... I mean, it, it, also, 10 years ago, it was booth, girl, it was booth babes, right? And they were right. in you know, manufactured costumes, and they were hired. Right. They and, didn't give a shit about anything at the con. Right. They were and, literally and, there to wear a bikini and say, ooh, you should buy this Nerf gun or whatever. Yeah, right. And then yeah. and the, the modern cosplayer of either of, of any gender, let's see, right. um, they are putting their own craft into it. It's their own product. They are their own product. I love it because yeah. they're committed to what they're doing and they're and they're confident about it. And in many cases, they were very otherwise very shy people. Right, right. In this role, yeah, this um, is their personality that kind of lets them be something that they're afraid to be out in the regular world. In, in a some lot cases, of cases. And in other yeah, cases, in some I think cases, it was very consistent with their attitude. Yeah, with their, 
with their persona. I, I don't know. It's it, I, very interesting to me. Yeah, it's cool. And I think, and one thing that I think is really great is a, and a lot of the cons I've been going to recently, like Rose City and a few of the others, they have signs up explaining how cosplay is not consent. Yeah, Just because right. they're wearing cosplay does not mean they're open to groping and hugging and everything else. They really want people to admire and appreciate them but in a respectful manner, ask before you take a photo, see if it's okay if you pose with them, that kind of thing. And I think it's awesome that they're really starting to promote that end of it. As a, as a non-prude father of two small children of different genders, <laughs> it was pleasantly surprising to me um, to be inspired by the idea that my kids could be in you know, 10 years at cons in costume and be confident and bold and creative and assertive however they want to be. Absolutely. And um, that, it, and, it was, and it isn't just about being, um, I don't know, be visually consumed in a negative way. Right. Yeah, it I think it's there, great that you didn't walk out of Wizard World and be like, I never want my kids to go to a con and wear a costume because it's creepy or something like that. Yeah, yeah, That's the last thing you want coming out of something like that. So... I feel like I sound very old. I feel like right now. <laughs> you know, my I don't know what you're talking about, while We sir. were talking back in my day. <laughs> um, cat. So uh, my cat's climbing the printer right now. That's not the end of it. So <laughs> I thought um, I'd love to, to mention a few artists that we saw at the con that I really liked. I think we should link to, um, I don't know how you want to do this, but I'd like to link to um, the, the post-mortem write-up of the convention, at least, um, Holy shit. That sounded destructive, sir. That was amazing. Is that another scanner down there's, the drain? There's some, there's some, <laughs> there's some <clears throat> decorating done by my six month old kitten. <laughs> no kidding. I don't even want to know what was happening there. Um, anyway, <laughs> glass shelving just collapsed. Yeah, it sounded like you had a stack of plates that were knocked over. <laughs> I know. If it had been timed differently, it would be like one of those cheesy sound effects off the off the keyboard, right? No kidding. Anyway, um, uh, anyway, so we did a write up of the of the con. I wrote, I did a write up of it, and 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 then you and you had some comments too. And I think we should be able to link to that after this, right? Yeah, I think that'd be great. Um, yeah, but um, so you can follow any of the people that I that I mentioned now. You can in that write up find links to their sites and see their work. But a few people I wanted to mention, if that's cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, there was an artist named Julia Cohn. I've butchered the names, I'm sure, but um, <laughs> uh, she was doing a lot of really interesting stuff. Where um, there was uh, some three dimensionality, there were pa it was paper craft, right? right? So I was drawn to the fact that she had done these bikes, these various <clears throat> bikes that were extruded out of the out of a um, a shadow box or out of a, out of a card. Um, but then she had some animals and some other stuff. She had done some architecture, and it was just really interesting style of a combination of illustration and paper craft, which was yeah. great. I did really like uh, the, the three-dimensionality of her stuff. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, and then um, I, I want to say Ava Art. Mm -hmm. uh, she was really striking. She had this bright pink hair. Yeah, um, if it was a wig or a dye, whatever, she had a pink um, sweater on. She had all this really cute art all over her table, and I told her, I said, you know, my daughter would lose her mind if she saw this booth. <laughs> and then later I showed these photos to my daughter. And she oh, did sure, you? Nice. Wow. <laughs> totally into this stuff. And her, her style is really cool. I, I spent a long time on her website. Um, and then, of course, JP, who we talked to at our booth. JP's yeah. awesome. Um, 
Uh, her her art inst- installations are amazing. Oh, they're the strangest, like most surrealist. Yeah, yeah, they're they're landscape animal. I I mean dreamscapes. You can't even really describe them. They're very unique. I don't know what's going on. I love it. I love it though. I yeah, mean, yeah, they're I'm amazing. I'm into art that that doesn't look anything like mine. Do you know what I mean? Like <laughs> right, exactly. I'm uh, always drawn to that. <laughs> yeah, Cody Cody Brosh, uh had a, a whole series of stuff that I really liked, but especially his coffee splatter series. Yeah. Really awesome. I have, I have a couple of those linked. Um, uh, there was an artist named Junior Arce who had some really great color work, um, great compositions, uh, very it's stylized very illustrator looking. stuff. Yeah. Um, Sean Keaton has a comic called Panic Attack, which I um, got into once I started. You know, I liked this stuff at the table, and I was like, I want to take – you know, take a look at this later. But once right. I once I started reading the webcomic, I was, um, it's like I, I wrote about it. I said, you know, I was sold the moment Joey Ramone's heart was shoved into a robot. I mean, you know, just that as the basic premise on the first page is, yeah. Um, and then uh, Panastamos, I, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, um, has the style that um, has a, has a lot of influence of like cell 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 style rendering, which is something that ins- that has inspired me in terms of how I use color as well. But um, some really graphic stuff, but also really, really amazing. Really cool uh, use of light in it, yeah. too. Light yeah, and yeah. shadow. Um, Pepper T did a lot of uh, monochrome work, which I really liked. And um, uh, Alan Teen has a, uh, has a really, um, what, I, what I thought of as a painterly style, which I think my kids would have really liked. It was, it was um, illustration, I think, aimed, aimed at children. I thought yeah, it, it had a very children's book style to it, but a lot more of an anime kick, which I thought was cool. Yeah, I like the stars in the eyes. Literally, yeah. stars and irises, right? Um, Christina Duke was a, um, a 3D artist, um, but I, I was going through her um, site, and I loved some of the concept work that she had done. Oh, that's cool. Um, the Flying Circus airship was the one that I liked the most, but I mean, I just, you know, I'm a real, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm purely, uh, I like just straight up steampunk, but I like variations of that. I like yeah. that. I call crypto historical stuff. I like when the imagery of fantasy from different eras is fused with those eras and played with. And so the idea of, you know, flying ships of the line or flying circus ships, just to me, that's hilarious. I yeah, love it. I think it's awesome. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, there are a few other artists as well that you could take a look at in the write up. But um, anyway. Yeah. yeah, I want to give a shout out to uh, Kristen Brown and Sam Rusk as well. Oh yeah, um, they were the pair that were doing uh, Hound's Tooth, which is a comic that I have read a couple times now. It's it's a really fun little. It's kind of a it's it's kind of hard to describe actually. It's about a kid and his friend, and they live surrounded by anthropomorphic animals, and it's. It's a fun little story. the The art's really unique, and the 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 two of them were just awesome. They were just down the aisle from us, and they were a lot of fun too. Yeah, I liked them a lot, and uh, and like a lot of the artists at uh, at Ape, thanks to the judicious hashtagging, we find each other on Instagram or Facebook. But um, uh, just sort of keeping up that way as well. Right. So that was Ape. I that loved it. I look forward Ape. to next year. And you know, by the way. Uh, this very day, today, the 11th of November, I committed to San Francisco Comic-Con as well. Oh, really? Oh, um, my. Uh, interesting, interesting background on that con. I was, you know how we were talking earlier about, um, well, we were, we were talking in San Jose about 
the fact that it was odd that there were no San Francisco-based cons anymore. Right. I mean, it was such a hub of artists, and it was a large urban center. It didn't make any sense. Well, you know, on the site for the the new San Francisco Comic Con, they mm-hmm. actually talk about that as being like, well. You'll know there are you'll note that there are no conventions for comics right now in the city, and the reason right. is that there's it's prohibitively expensive uh, because of the logistics of setting up conventions in the city. Interesting. There's union, there's union stuff. There's logistics, hmm. um, and it's it was kind of interesting. And so they've set the initial. Uh, you know, the, the inaugural cons uh, table pricing pretty low. Right. But at the same time, that's to soften the blow of the um, mandatory rates for loading and unloading. So they have a whole scheme. Oh, and maybe they really? can see that on other, other cons, but there's a whole system. They have an exhibitor, a, a company that's managing this. Hmm. It's managing the loading dock, and there's a, a tiered pricing system for how you get your product in and out, whether Weird. it's a single unloading of a vehicle, whether it's pallets. And you're paying for it in advance, and it's one way. You know, it, it's a thing. That's right? pretty bizarre. And, well, you know, and, and thinking about the city and the way things are today in San Francisco, it did make sense to me, and I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. Right. Um, it's making it possible for them to do the con. Now, this is the guy, these are the guys that do the Indiana Comic Con as well, right? I think so, yeah. yeah. So, you know, I'm I'm of the scale where I can walk my stuff in. They said, it's, it's pretty funny, it says... If you if you can walk your stuff in without a dolly, in one trip, mm-hmm. one person, then you don't have to pay these fees. <laughs> I thought to myself, "Hot damn, I'm going to do it! I'm going to have one of those backpacks that's like impossibly tall with my pots and pans on it." Right? There's a cat up there. Right, right. That is bizarre, dude. But I'm going to somehow get my stuff in just be, just on principle. I don't want to pay a couple hundred bucks to carry, you know. Right, right. That seems a little ludicrous in a lot of ways. Well, feet of stuff, right? But mm. um, anyway, so I'm excited. I'm going to do it anyway. So that 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 means um, two at least two cons next year for me. The one that nice. we'll do together, plus one at least one that we'll do uh, plus San Diego, um, uh, and then you know who knows who knows if I'll be able to get out to one of the other ones you do. Yeah, absolutely. We'll definitely have to check into it because I think it'd be really fun. All right. So cool. Same uh, the only other thing I would note about the San Jose one uh, for that? Ape um, is that I was going to mention how strange it was that the bathrooms were outside in the trailer and we were essentially in a giant blue tent for the. Color. I love that, part. but I, I kind of dug it. Yeah, yeah. Good insulate or good uh, ventilation and acoustics. Were it great. was it was such a strangely like kind of rustic feel to it, which I kind of dug. Yeah, that's a. I mean, I'm not unfamiliar with tent structures in architecture, but um, that was my first time spending a substantial period of time in one. Right. And I really liked it. It was, I mean, especially compared to our previous experience. Right. But, you know, I mean, it was very comfortable. The air quality was good. Um, the acoustics were great. Yeah. And it felt comfortable. I mean, two days in. Granted, it was a shorter con than than. Yeah, that's true. It was just a two-day, yeah. Yeah, but, but you know, at the end of each day, I mean, despite being exhausted from being up all night and having whiskey and whatnot, <laughs> right. I didn't feel wiped out the way I expected to. I didn't no, have that no. same sort of, you know, it, it, moisture has been removed from my body feeling, right? Right. Desiccated we, feeling. That we didn't feel like we I did when we went to that shitty Denny's after Sacramento. Terrible. <laughs> oh. oh. Why'd you bring it up? <laughs> oh, the nightmare Denny's. 
Yeah, the only palatable thing on my plate was the cheap yellow mustard, and that's not. <laughs> and it was still looked better than most of what everybody else was eating. Although yeah. I did eat my entire meal because I learned not to order breakfast at eleven o'clock at night. Well, but you know, my experiences when I was in college and stuff was that you know that was a slam dunk. Late night breakfast places, you know, how could you go wrong? Um, I'll tell you how. Yeah, Sacramento. Yeah, yeah. Sacramento, one hundred percent. So that was our report of the Alternative Press Expo. What would you rate it from, like, 1 to 8? What would your scale be for that? 33. 33. If you didn't know, my buddy Tom is a little obsessed with threes. I, I, think, that, I think that should be known. Uh, third rail, threes, pretty much any way I can think of. You've incorporated threes into your life. Well, it's not like I'm a numerologist or anything. You have to like the number that became a thing, and then you just run with it, right? Right. But uh, yeah, that's true. But, but you know, honestly, though, I, I had a I had a great time at that con. It was it was um, there were very few things about it that I would have changed, um, and and those that I would would were about me and what I brought, right? Right, like, right. I would have preferred to have remembered to bring all of my prints with me. <laughs> Well, uh, and the, but, but, the no, surrounding I mean, events of the con, us, yeah. the donut shop, and the movies, and everything else, were it great too. It, you know, to be honest, though, I mean, the, the one thing that hurt uh, Ape was the fact that it was advertised it be, as being at the San Jose Convention yes. Center, but it was really in the annex, right? Yeah. And as, as you recall, I found two at two different occasions. I went out to the main uh, convention center and collected thirty to fifty people that were <laughs> milling around in circles, <laughs> kind of like those. Uh, uh, NPCs and video games that have had a, a code problem, so they're just kind of like right, they're like all repeatedly waiting uh, for an event to happen. Right, <laughs> right, so I was like, "Hey, you guys, you know, looking for Ape?" And then they they'd all follow me back to the, where the tent was, and eventually, it didn't take long for them. I mentioned it to the 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 coordinator of the con, and they they quickly got someone out there physically. I said, "Why don't you put a right. sign up?" And they actually sent a, a warm body out there to reroute people to where the tent was. And I think that's something that they'll probably change next year. Yeah, we should note that this was the first year that this con was run by this group of people. And the first year it's been in San Jose for a long time, at least, because it was in San Francisco for yeah. a decade or so, wasn't it? I think so. I, I think so. it moved around a little bit in recent years, but I think this might have been the first time in San Jose. I'm yeah. not sure. No, it might have been there before. I don't know. But anyway, the point is... If I could change anything about the con, it would be that aspect of it. Is yeah. way fun. But then again, I'm an architect. I think that way, right? Well, the the signage and advertising definitely seemed lacking for this con. Uh, not just on the site, but like on the actual site of the con. But like their website was kind of hard to navigate. It was hard to find out certain information about it, that kind of thing. Um, and part of that is that... Uh, I believe they either used to be associated with San Diego or they are now one way or the other. And mm -hmm. a lot of, like if you just typed in Alternative Press Expo, a lot of the links would take you to the former layout and the different right. site and that kind of thing. Well, but, it was a transitionary. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, think I, get I had a great time. Out. The con itself was great. I think that the the, the bodies on the ground, they were, they were um, everybody that was involved in organizing and preparing it were really cool. Yeah. Um, they were very responsive when there was feedback. I mean, you compare that to our experience in Sacramento when <laughs> right. they were very, we were very nearly having a revolt of the exhibitors because they were so outraged at how the con was being run right. uh, and feeling like they were not being um, heard. Uh, you know, as a comparison to that, I'm sorry to keep slagging that con, but it was just, it was a, <laughs> it was a, 
it was a distressing. I'm gonna get an email tomorrow from Wizard World, and they're they're like, "We don't need you in Reno, sir." Yeah, well, (laughs) no, I, I I was a little uncomfortable in in Sacramento because I'm actually I have a, you know, I have a day job. Right. You know, I I can lose money at these things, um, and it's part of it's the cost of of the hobby, or it's the cost of my side business. Right. It's not gonna kill me um, to have a bad con. Guys like you and most of the people there, you know, a poorly organized con or a con that just does not perform is a real it's problem. Harsh. And yeah. that that con had so much opportunity to be a good one, and apparently the year before it was great. But yeah, uh, it apparently. really fell apart this year. So yeah. comparatively, I felt like uh, um, everyone at Slave Labor uh, were very responsive and supportive at eight. Yeah. So I really liked yeah. it. Yeah, I would probably I would rate it. Just the con itself, I would probably have to give it a six of eight, just because of my sheer amount of driving time and how well I did not do sales-wise. But again, like you said, some of that has to do with what I brought and what I had available to purchase. Um, But once you add our actual event and going to the movie and all that other shit around it, that easily knocks it up another notch. No, up to 33. Yeah, up to 33, yeah. And now we pause for a quick word from our sponsor. This week, the Third Rail Design Lab. What have you got for us today? Well, today I brought an Australian gerbil. If you're interested in my work, you can find me at thirdraildesignlab.com. You'll find a blog. I'm heavily involved in the process side of my work, so you'll see all of the steps that went into it from the pencils, the the reference material, if any, the pencils, all the way through full render. Um, I show you all the the how the sausage is made, so to speak, um, <clears throat> and uh, and over time I'm going to be building back in a lot of the creator own stuff and and uh, bring more of the merchandising back in. But for now, it's mostly um, a site where you can uh, hopefully be inspired by some of the uh, work that I've done, and 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 also I have a forum that's associated with the site where we do a weekly art jam um, that's hosted on that forum and also on DeviantArt. Um, at the end of this, we'll provide some links to that um, for artists of any skill level who want to contribute. We do a different subject each week, and everything goes. And that site again was? ThirdRailDesignLab.com. Excellent. Okay, so, uh, yeah, let's go ahead and do a review. Claude, let me ask you about the film that we're going to see today. Okay. Uh, we watched The Martian. You want to review The Martian real quickly? I thought it was fantastic. I did too. You know what's funny about that, though? We saw it in a, a theater called the... Oh, what was it now? Camera 12 or something? Yeah, something. Or, yeah, it, like that by a whole 12. complex is called Camera, I think, or something like that. But when we were, remember when we were organizing the, the evening and we went to pick our tickets on online on the phone... Mm-hmm. Uh, we saw that it was available in a, in a normal theater, and then it was inv- available as a, like a, I don't know, 3D, something, yeah. something, Omnivision or whatever it was. Yeah. And we're like, oh, come on. And so we got the regular tickets. And then when we were <laughs> in line for concessions before the show, and we saw that demo of that, I want to say Omnivision, but I don't I, know what it, it was. It was something like that. I can't remember what it was called. Yeah. It was sort of like a modern take on the 50s vibrating chairs thing. Totally an old school. Yeah, like... Now showing in fuel around. Yeah, yeah. So it was neat. The, the, each of the chairs were on the gimbal, and they were rotating around and shaking and stuff. And so, and of course, they were showing it. They had a, a pair of seats yeah, there. Demo in the lobby. 
Yeah, and they were showing it with like, I don't know, Gone in 60 Seconds or some Transformers or something like that, which was all action. And so the chairs are bouncing all over the place. um, Kind of caught Whiplash. (laughs) But what I was struck by, I remember at the time thinking, well, that's kind of, that that will get old real fast, right? Right. So then when we actually see The Martian, I realized that this is a movie that would have been perfect for that kind of format. It really would have, yeah. still... You know, uh, you know, sections of the film which are very, um, you know, measured and yeah. calm and a little bit tense, and then it would have these moments where something's happening, and you and they really build up to it, right? Because of that right um, dichotomy. So, can you imagine in some of those scenes in this movie if your chair started flying around? Oh, it would have been awesome. Yeah, well, and, and there were a few scenes in there where if these chairs were really calibrated the way they should be, and it is Omnivision, by the way. Yeah. Um, like the scene where he's in the rover and he's going over the dirt and where it's just slightly bouncy and you right. just get a little bit of that vibration. And then you hit that scene where the wind hits it and it shakes it to the side. Shit like that would have been amazing in those, actually. But not, like you said, like Gone 60 Seconds or something like that where it's just nonstop boom, boom, boom. You'd get a fucking headache and whiplash by the end of the movie, I would think. I felt that way watching Transformers... Uh... Just, you know, in the living room. Without the hell can't imagine if things were flying right. all over the place. Well, so Martian gets a lot of comparisons to um, uh, Castaway, right? No, is it Castaway with Tom Hanks? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that was the obvious comparison. Well, it's two comparisons this year were Interstellar, which Matt Damon was also in. It was earlier in the year. Right. And uh, another amazing film. I still haven't seen that either. Oh. You, I know. You, I failed. It's, it's unfortunate. It's it's hard to find. Like it's not on any streaming services, which is kind of odd. Well, if you really wanted it enough, it would have happened. By well, now. sure. If I want to contact a pirate about finding it, or... we don't do that. We don't we don't support piracy in this podcast. <laughs> but but so it was compared to Interstellar because Matt Damon was an astronaut in two film two science fiction right. films in the same year. But also, it's uh, compared to Castaway, I think, because like that film. You know, the majority, the vast majority of the screen time is in, uh, is not just in composition, but also in the story, is focused on one actor one isolated or one character isolated. Right. They're in, in, in the former movie, Tom Hanks, and in this movie, Matt Damon, the subtlety of their acting, the charisma, the vulnerability, mm-hmm. um, the enthusiasm, you know, that's what led you to accept that you were going to spend that much time with them. Right. In particular, and I understand that the, the, the source material for this film went even further with the character. That That's what I've heard, yeah. Yeah, but um, even in what we saw in the film, the fact that he was rebellious and a little bit cocksure was, yeah. was really refreshing, right? Yeah, his optimism was a huge part of it. Like, he wouldn't have been nearly as likable if he didn't have that. Yeah, he, he was he was a little bit irreverent, and I like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, and again, granted, it was diluted for the film, but uh, you know, I thought it was hilarious. Yeah, um, I thought it was great, and I appreciate that there were some you know um, serious um, deviations from reality as far as what the the phys- the physics nature of Mars is, and right? What wind would or wouldn't do, and so forth. But on the other hand. Um, you know, you didn't have to know how well they passed this through NASA and, and how much <laughs> right. this was actually based on real Mars exploration plans. Um, 
to feel when you're actually seeing the movie that this seems plausible. And I think right. that's all a movie like this can ever ask. It's the reason why, you know, multi-hundred million dollar space epics either work or they don't. Absolutely. Just one of them. But, you know, these really big, absolutely elaborate, 100% green screen fantasy films, they work or they don't, entirely based on whether you find it relatable and plausible. Right. Whether it's verisimilitude. Right. Yeah, it works. If it doesn't pass the smell test, you're pulled out of it, right? Right. Whether it's the Uncanny Valley in the case of animation, or whether it's right. the, the, the fact that all the modern CGI is so uh, crisp and lush and constant in its high frame rate that it doesn't feel like it's real, which is something <laughs> that you see read, read, written about quite a bit now. Yeah. Um, this movie is a classic example of where less was more. Absolutely. It was very understated, and but still totally engrossing. You'd watch the movie and not be thinking about whether the science was accurate or not. Right. And uh, anything like that. And it was directed by Ridley Scott. We should mention that. I usually try to, but I didn't this time. But... <laughs> It's probably his best film in 10 years or more. I easily, yeah. Like, I honestly, without going back 20 years, I don't know if I can think of one that I've liked better than this. You know, it's funny. Um, I'm a I'm an apologist for Prometheus. Um, I think it was a hot mess, but I enjoyed it. And even the parts yeah, that made no yeah. sense, you know, visually, the scale of it, the the imagery, the composition, I like all that stuff. I'm a, I'm a Ridley Scott fan. You know, I like yeah. those kinds of austere filmmakers. Um but this was a movie that was put together really well. It so absolutely you didn't have to, was. You didn't have to apologize away for chunks of it that didn't make any sense. Like with Prometheus, I have to say, I just liked it, okay? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I wouldn't yeah. touch the snake alien, but I liked it, you know. So this is a film where, you know, in comparison, you know, I walked out of Interstellar feeling like, um, you know, uh, Nolan had pulled off this amazing feat and had done this absolutely visionary homage to... 2001, and it just was a spiritual sequel to it, and then this was this beautiful thing, and it was completely reasonable, and I was glossing over some of the implausibility and some, not, I don't want to say implausibility, but I was glossing over some of the plot points that were iffy. They come back I to, to the product. I love the end product and the experience. Right. But Martian, you didn't have to really gloss over much. It no. just felt tight. Well, and, and the, the plot and everything that happens is, it's not like it's this weird esoteric, oh, maybe this would happen this way or anything like that. It's it's basically the one thing that he could do is what he did, and they made it in a way that it was utterly watchable to watch that type of thing. It wasn't like, well, he had 74 different things he could do. He really only had a couple of things he could do to survive for that long in that time in where he was, but... Well, here's something else, and, and again, I'm, I'm speaking from the perspective of someone who watches a lot of movies, right. reads a lot of books, gets into a lot of stories, but is also a parent of small children, and I think about the structure, as a parent, I think about the structure of the, of the media that my kids are watching, mm -hmm. whether it's aimed at them or it's not aimed at their age level and they're just kind of easing into it, like we were talking about with Star Wars, right. um, the Star Wars. You know, I, th I think about the framework of the story from a writer's perspective or from mm -hmm. a creator's perspective. I think about the production of it, right? Right. So I found, I've often thought it was interesting that, you know, pretty much since the dawn of time, uh, 
these narratives have this structure where it's protagonist versus antagonist, and there's right. a big build-up, and there's a denouement at the end. Uh, what made Martian so effective and interesting to me was that there was no antagonist. Right. I mean, it was uh, from the basic storytelling framework going back to school, you know, okay, so nature was the antagonist. Right, right. But but there was no human antagonist. There was no force. Um, and even then, I don't know if I would say that nature was the antagonist because I tend to associate that storytelling style of, you know, it's the 100-year storm or it's the extinction level event that they're you know, the asteroids are falling right Those kind of stories where i think of well nature's the bad guy right yeah this is a story where well nature was harsh <laughs> yeah but, but it was just what it did <laughs> it, just, it was what it was yeah and was adapting to it and managed to pull it off and the other the other crew members and everybody that was involved um i i thought that all the characters whether it was the other crew members in space or whether it was the nasa folks whether it was the director they they behaved in a believable, consistent Absolutely. manner. Which, you know, going back to our comments about Gotham, it's exactly about everything about Gotham doesn't do. <laughs> right. I well, and everyone was really understated, which cannot be were. said about Gotham either. <laughs> That's true. Even like the NASA director was making decisions that were, you know, painful to the narrative. Right. Emotional core of the narrative. But were understandable and believable from his perspective. In position, yeah. Yeah. If I make a big deal about this, I will sink the NASA program. I will sink this right. program, and there will be no more exploration. Right. He has the, greater, to... the greater good for humanity versus exactly. the, the theoretical likelihood that this one guy somehow has survived. <laughs> exactly. I, I, I think that's, I mean, it's pragmatic. It's not pleasant, but I think it that's is. a reasonable perspective. Yeah, yeah. In those circumstances, there's really no other choice you can make. I mean, you're talking about millions of dollars to to find out something that could still come up as a zero sum and disappoint everybody anyway. Well, for the most for most of the movie, it was really about retrieval of bodies, right? right. It was right. about we have to go back and get the corpse. Yeah. Until they had a reason to believe that he was still alive, which um, they did in a really clever way. I liked yeah, the, yeah. how they did that. So anyway, yeah, I would definitely say that that's a must see. Yeah, it was solid. I really enjoyed it. And uh, so, gosh, to be honest with you, um, my 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 contemporary movie viewing is so sporadic with my schedule these days. Um, I think between Interstellar and, well, Interstellar and Martian were the only films that I was reasonably sober through that I can <laughs> that I can think about. Every other movie in the theater that I've seen this year, and even then, Interstellar, I was I don't know. I had I had one and a half eyes right. committed to the screen, and I was losing <laughs> one of them. But everything else I saw this year, um, Avengers two and mm. Rogue Nation, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Oh yeah. In each case, I was yeah I I, I overcommitted to the to the adu- to the adult beverages or the adult consumables. <laughs> the the preparatory stage. Yeah, and so the actual <laughs> viewing experience, and particularly the memory of it afterwards is really vague. So I'm actually looking forward to rewatching both of those movies and seeing if they make sense sober. Right. Because, uh, at the time I saw them, I couldn't make heads or tails out of either. <laughs> right on. I don't think there's enough honey whiskey in the world that would make Martian not. I agree. Yeah, because it, it should be said that each of us had, uh, what, approximately 500 milliliters of honey whiskey that we brought in with us. 
And I know I drained mine by about halfway through the movie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I mean, you know, I've been, I've been watching movies, you know, I, I only get out very occasionally to do this and I'm usually out with our buddy Blair. And that usually right. means several hours of the bar beforehand. And, <laughs> um, you know, I'm usually within, you know, like an hour out from the movie starting and I start to go, Oh man, <laughs> forgot to slow down. You know, <laughs> my feet aren't touching the floor properly. <laughs> right. so, yeah. yeah, bourbon sampling yeah. at speed not great <laughs> right before right. The, not on speed but at speed anyway, <laughs> on speed anyway. <laughs> yeah that would be a totally different problem yes it would although I will say when we saw Rogue Nation we, we stopped in and got um, road burgers right before nice brought them in uh, and uh, he he didn't get I don't think he got through the line before he had eaten his. I think he was in line. <laughs> That's hilarious. Just blatantly eating it. But <laughs> I had mine uh, in the theater starting the movie in the first 20 minutes of that movie. And it was the absolute best burger I've ever had in my entire life. <laughs> my synapses were just melting. Burgers are better when eaten in the dark with a giant movie screen in front of you. <laughs> yes, and, and too many consumables otherwise. Yes. Yes. All right, so. So that was our review of The Martian by Ridley Scott, who uh, just brought up on the screen, and he hasn't really done anything I've been super excited about for quite a while, actually. Like, I think the last thing... didn't float your boat, so to speak? What's, what's that? 1492? <laughs> well, and he... That was back in 92. <laughs> he's done a... He's directed a shit ton of movies, but I either haven't seen them or didn't care for them. He was on his whole Russell Crowe kick for a while there, where, like, Robin Hood featuring Russell Crowe and all, all right, of those. But what about... Okay, so do you, let's, let's digress for a moment. Yes. What about The Counselor? I have not seen that. Oh, my God, you got to go see that movie. Really? I love I don't even know what that, that is. Movie. That movie, The Counselor, to me, was, I mean, in my somewhat myopic worldview, it was like Ridley Scott and Michael Mann fused. I it, Oh, shit, that's that Fassbender movie, isn't it? Oh, my God, it was so that crazy. That does look really good. I'd forgotten about that. It was super fun, and I have to say that it's one of the movies, once again, I'm, we just sound like terrible lushes, but it was a movie that it was one of my three martini movies, right? Right. Um, but I... Well, actually, the worst was uh, watching uh, the previous James Bond film. Oh yeah, uh, where I was, I got into my absinthe, and so I got through the whole movie, and I was like, "That was great. I feel great." And then I shut everything off and went to bed, and then the spin started. I was like, oh, come "Nice." <laughs> but anyway, anyway, Counselor, you got to see that movie. Tales of Tom Drinking, Part yes. Seven. <laughs> this yeah, is forty. I will have to watch that definitely. Um, and like the last one I watched of his before that was probably that I liked was Matchstick Man. I did like that flick a lot, but that was clear back in two thousand three. I had it, but I haven't seen it. And see, and I have American Gangster, but I haven't watched it. That's one of those that I think I'll probably eh like okay, but I have to be in the mood to see. <laughs> wait, wait, American Gangster. So one with um, right. Yeah, uh, but, Denzel and Russell Crowe again. Right, right. Did he also do Public Enemy? Uh, I think he Public was a Enemies? producer on it, but I don't think he directed it. Mm. I know he had something to do with it, but I don't remember what. Ridley Scott's a tough nut. I mean, Blade Runner and the the the, the mythological status of Blade Runner that right. I really um, 
am, you know, admit that I'm responsible for in my own life. You know, I've always <laughs> held that movie up. Any version of it, right? Five thousand versions of it that are out now. You know, I've always held them as one of the, you know, these pin- these pinnacles in my in my formative years as far as filmmaking goes. And, right, and those but, movies allow us to give him a tremendous amount of leeway exactly. because they're so influential to us. Exactly. It's like no matter what garbage happens to happen, because movies sometimes best intentions, but by the time it comes out of editing and right studio meddling and who knows what, sometimes they just are a hot mess. <laughs> um, and then sometimes they're a mess from the beginning. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, uh, I've given him, I've always given him a lot of slack. It's like, well, you know, there was Blade Runner, so. <laughs> right, exactly. And I like the way his There's camera work looks. And I'm, it's so funny. Those. I'm so superficial sometimes about <laughs> making. If I like the way it looks, I will let a lot slip. I right? am the same way. Yeah. Look at my obsession with Michael Mann. I mean, Heat is the best movie that's ever been committed to film. <laughs> but, you know, I watched some of his other stuff. <laughs> I don't think that there was a lot of um, critical praise for the Miami Vice reboot. Miami Vice is an excellent reboot. I enjoyed the hell out of it. When it comes to shiny boats and... Yeah. <laughs> now I'm starting to wonder if Michael Mann did Counselor. We're going to edit that. I'm going to look it up and then we're going to edit this. <laughs> well, though, he, he definitely directed the Counselor. Ridley Scott did. What did I just see from Michael Mann that I was like, well, that happened... I don't know. No, I know what I'm thinking now. It, there's bourbon, it's late also. But it's <laughs> Black Hat. I saw Black Hat. I reviewed it on the forum. Oh, uh, yeah. That was a bucket of shit. And I loved it, though, because it, it looked like a Michael Mann right? film. Yeah. It yeah, and sense. it looks really pretty, but it, it looks like the storyline's just nutso. Yeah, it just, it was, it, it, it was taking, it was applying the, the, uh, I don't know, the crime saga with the Michael Mann filter onto a subject matter that didn't really want it. Um, I mean, there's there's certainly no shortage of uh, tactical ops to go after hackers and, and right. terrorist groups that are involved in cybersecurity problems. Certainly that's not purely fictional. Right, but the way it's not that completely movie was presented, <laughs> yeah, The hacker of the movie, the, the, the prime you know guy was... Thor, for fuck's sake. <laughs> right. <laughs> he's he's the sexiest hacker since Hugh Jackman. <laughs> yeah. Just, yeah, right. I mean, I think, you know, had had it not been a vehicle for him, I mean, he was perfectly fine in it. Right. But uh, I liked it fine. But, um, you know, had, had, had the main character of a cyber thriller been someone that was more plausible as a... <laughs> right. Hacker. And I don't know. Maybe I'm being... Um, you know, I don't know. Maybe I'm being bodyist. Yeah, I don't who know. knows? Hackers may there be are probably the, a lot the of sexiest really classification super of built, Super handsome hackers out there. <laughs> right. Well, well from our, our, let's see here, from from film that I can think of hacker-wise, we've got, so we've got Hemsworth now. We've got Hugh Jackman in Swordfish. He was a hacker. Um, that movie was... <laughs> that movie didn't even have the benefit of being directed by Michael Mann, so it was 90% ugly. of the budget of that movie was paid to Halle Berry. This I don't think so. Yeah, I, I can't remember the only who thing it about was that we were talking movie. about, but that scene where he's getting a blowjob while he's hacking, and it was That's just terrible. like, it's just ridiculous. But that was the one where they did a really great uh, bomb's-eye view of a 
of a of a, a ball bearing bomb, right? Yes, which was badass. And it seems like that was in the first like three minutes of the film, though, if right. I remember right. Yeah, and it was like the only good part of the entire movie. Right, and it was also an example of what happens when John Travolta is not being directed Shit, by the right people Travolta and given the right material, and is just told the scenery chew, and it didn't work very well. Yeah, yeah, that was directed by the same guy that did. Um... Gone 60 Seconds, and that fucking Season of the Witch movie with Nicolas Cage. <laughs> I haven't seen any of those movies. Oh, man. No. Yeah. There's no time for it. Yeah, apparently everything he directs either has Travolta or Cage in it from the looks of things. <laughs> so, there you go. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, <laughs> I'm a big fan of recurring use of the same people. I mean, the Wes Anderson stuff and the Right. Brothers. It's like having featured players. Well, and on, honestly, um... Ridley Scott does that too pretty heavily. Yeah. He and he goes through like like seasons of them where he'll use Russell Crowe for like five years and then he'll rotate into uh the the guy in Martian whose name I can't even pretend to pronounce the was the director. He's in at least three or four of his movies. Who is it that you're referring uh, to? the director of NASA. Who's, oh um I, I'm not even gonna try and pronounce his name. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know what you mean. Should You're right. Tell? What was surreal to me was that the not the not the sort of endgame villain, but the main physical uh, nemesis to our superpowered hacker mm-hmm. protagonist was the actor Richie Coster, and I just saw him on True Detective season two. Oh, really? Which is almost universally maligned. Like it's the worst. Yeah, thing I haven't seen it television, yet. and I happen to love it just fine. Oh, good. But he plays the mayor on that season, and he's just this washed up, completely drunk, miserable, corrupt guy, barely <laughs> just barely hanging on. And then in Black Hat, he's he's uh, you know a, a mercenary enforcer kind of guy, right? Really cool, shaved head. Hmm. And then before that, I remember him as one of the thugs in The Dark Knight, who's at the table. Oh, really? Giving when the, the, Ledger's the Joker some scene. wit before he lights all the money on fire. How so it was weird. this weird, you know, I love the that guy kind of thing. Right. You're just kind of following the actor across, you know, you're watching a film going, where have I seen that guy? <laughs> um, you know, the whole law, law and order slash CSI thing that was happening forever. The actors were just bouncing from right. project. Um, even the guy that had on his resume famously, I was never in law and order. He just got on law and order or, or CSI or whatever. It is. <laughs> One of those. Anyway, with with Richie Coster, it was surreal because I watched maybe thirty minutes of that movie before I realized it was the mayor from True Detective. Right? That's like, awesome. It was so different in his in his um, in his affectation. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like I just right. didn't, didn't seem like the same guy at all until I realized it was. That's pretty interesting. It's a long way of saying that actors do different roles. And they look different yes, movies. they do. That is, it's called acting. I think. Yes. Yeah. So. <laughs> Acting that's happened, we've talked about. Should we talk about acting that's coming up? Yeah, I think we should. Should we do coming. our pick of the pod, or do you want to do coming attractions first? All right, let's do your pick of the pod. Let's do pick of the pod. You know, this is always one of my favorite segments of the show, because I never know quite what they're going to be bringing out here. I have a really quick one. Um, it was technically my pick of the pod previously on a different podcast, but they just released the interior photos of the Lego Ghostbusters firehouse, mm-hmm. and it looks fucking amazing, and so I have to choose it again because I am not creative tonight. 
<laughs> and that's all I can do. Like, I went to look for something else I was interested in, and I'm like, ah, fuck it, I want to look at the Ghostbusters firehouse pictures again. Because they look phenomenal. They do look phenomenal. Yeah, they look I, in, great. In fact, um, I'm, I'm living the dream right now because I have kids who are Lego age, so I get to buy these expensive Lego kits and sit down with them <laughs> and, and build them and enjoy it, and then let it explode, and, or as I call it, get atomized back right. into the large bin of Lego stuff. And I'm also the dork that periodically just goes and starts dividing the bricks up by color. Nice. You know, Spent a few hours. It's like Phantom Tollbooth work, right? Like right. Like organizing it, moving the grains of sand from one pile to the other until the kids <laughs> come and destroy it. But um, So, you know, really neat Lego kits, which only a few years ago I looked at your hobby, for example, as an adult Lego collector. Without right. Um, you know, I would look at these things and think, extraordinary price and... It's a Lego set, and I don't know. It's cool and all, but not right. my thing. Now I'm like, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and, and this looks really cool. They've they've shown like 15 pictures of the interior now, and they've included like little nods to both movies, which I think is cool. They've got the desks in the main floor, and a pool table, and little beds, and a kitchen, and they have the containment device, and yeah. I don't know. It just looks really sweet. They've set up a a little rig so you can actually use the fire pole and slide down it, which I think is pretty kick-ass. I love it. Yeah. It looks amazing, actually. So that's my pick. What is your pick, Sir Tom? Well, this is not exactly a, um, you know, a a lesser-known property that no one's ever heard of that's just an amazing find, but I have to say, I can't get Star Wars Battlefront out of my brain. Ah. Now, I am the target market because I am a kid who grew up watching Star Wars. I, I was, you know, Probably more Star Wars than Star Trek, if you have to make those divisions, though I watched more Star Trek content. Right. I'm of the target market age, right? Like, I was a, under 10 when Star Wars came out. You were technically as well, since you were Adams at the time. <laughs> but, um, That's right, old man. You were space. There's space and there's yes. stars in all of us. Anyway, the, <laughs> the thing is, though, I grew up, you know, I was very young when I saw Star Wars, and then, and then, uh, you know, I grew up with the first three movies, and, right. and then I was an adult, optimistic adult when the prequels came out, and then mortified. Um, <laughs> side note: I feel terrible about um, about the fact that the prequels have been so maligned that the creators on those films, some of which I know, mm-hmm. right, at ILM and at Lucas, right, and, right, these people put years and years into those productions. They were living the dream. You look at some of the behind-the-scenes production videos. Oh, they were so happy. And they're talking about, about how they were just like, this is a dream come true. I never thought. They were my age. They were kids who saw Star Wars. Right. And here they were as adults in the effects industry or, or, or as, uh, you know, as, 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 as production designers getting the chance to work on a new series of Star Wars films. Yeah, like the pinnacle dream. of what you could want to do, yeah. Right. And, you know, frankly, there's a lot about the prequels that you can complain about, and the bottom of the list of complaints is how they looked and felt in terms of world building. Absolutely. Yeah, have, no question. I have, I have issues with the radically different level of fit and finish of most yeah. of the tech in the prequels versus what we saw in the original movies that we went from that original, you know, his very deliberate thing. Right, of, they seem to have aged 45 to 70 years and not right. 20 or I mean, whatever. Yeah, I've read reviews from, we talked about it recently on the forum, right? I mean, we've read some reviews from some of the original 
uh, crew that were working on the Star Wars stuff. I mean, it's ad nauseum. You read that. Right. They talk about how it was a very deliberate choice to make things look really um, um, thoroughly used. Yeah. Oil, oil streaks on stuff that shouldn't have oil in it, right? Yeah. Exhaust plumes and things. And then you go into the prequels and everything is, 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 is sparkly and shiny. Now, that said, <laughs> right. they were also being set at a time when this was this sort of renaissance of that culture. Right. And there was a lot of money going around. And a lot of these cultures were not yet touched by war. So I, I can understand the, the direction they went. I think it was unfortunate that the crispness of the CGI combined with the newness of the designs, or the shininess of the designs, right. didn't play well against the timelessness of the design work and the effects work in the original. Yeah. Film. Yeah. That's definitely a downfall in that respect. Put so many years of work into that amazing stuff. Mm-hmm. And all we remember from it is the really bad acting and the really bad scripts and <laughs> some of the really bad characters. Did you see that, uh, that meme or Reddit that thread that's going around about how Jar Jar is actually the, the big bad that he intended yeah. to use. I yeah. guess they found a uh, possibly out-of-context quote from Lucas, too, talking about the third episode and how there were characters he wanted to go a different direction, but he wanted to please the fans, so he dropped it, which I thought yeah. was interesting. Like, see, it was Jar Jar! Well, I mean, I think a lot of that, um, a lot of that um, theory... Right, sprang from the fact that even in the finished product, he was directly relate. He was directly involved in some of the worst, um, <laughs> you know, uh, chess moves that led to the right led to giving the power Empire, to Palpatine. Right? And he all was that completely jazz. manipulated. Yeah. Well, anyway, okay. So Star Wars Battlefront. Okay, I yes. again we've talked about this. I don't have time for video games, and I have a <laughs> PS3 in the garage with a lot of cool games on it. But I have to say, I. One of the things that I've always wanted was an immersive Star Wars game. Mm-hmm. And I've played various games. I hadn't played the Knights of the Republic or whatever it is, but I played um, some of the others. And I, and to some degree or other, I felt like I, I felt like I was in a Star Wars world, but maybe not. Right. Like I felt it was more, like it was almost there. But I look at the level of technology they have now, the immersiveness where the, where the gameplay looks like the cinema reel. Right. It I look at everything amazing. that they've shown of, of Battlefront, and it's exactly what I always wanted. Yeah, I'm just you know, blown away by how amazing it looks. Well, in the same way that the, the I mean, I, maybe we're going to be shamed later, but the way the new, ser- the new films seem to be the follow-up to Star Wars that we always wanted. <laughs> right. So hopefully we're not disappointed, but I mean, they certainly look amazing. And yeah. that game, I just can't get over some of the stuff I've seen in those I want to have that feeling. I want to fly <laughs> under an ad at that's stumbling around for no reason. I want to be running around in the, in the jungle as those speeders are flying over me. I, everything right. that I see looks so immersive. Yeah. And then when you consider the fact that you can get it on the PS4 and that the, the PlayStation's or Sony's VR kit is going to be available next year, I think. Oh, that's and it's true. Gonna be a, it, you know, it's going to be a, a reasonable price. Like it's something that's going to—it's a VR that's going to be affordable to people. Right. You're this close. I mean, what I'm seeing is that we're this close to being able to be in a fairly, a fairly um, visceral Star Wars gameplay experience. Right. To me, that is really, really exciting. If there's anything that's going to get me off my ass and actually play a video <laughs> game for a while, it's running around underneath that ads, right? Right. And 
so that looks like it has a lot of promise to me. Now, I have to admit, if if the PS4 was backwards compatible, I'd already have one. Oh yeah, no question. Like I just wouldn't have. Right. I, I wouldn't even. I wouldn't even dwell on it. I would just do it and be done with it. But the fact that it's not backwards compatible, and sure, I could have the PS3 in the garage and dig it out whenever I want. I just know I wouldn't. Right. Right. Yeah. I once would, you've got that new system, the other one goes to the wayside and never gets touched again. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so I don't, I, I'm not there yet on the PS4, but. Um, it was just like when the Xbox One came out and they had that Titanfall game mm-hmm. where it was like the first time I had seen a game that seemed to give you a first-person view of mecha combat that looked right. fun. Almost pulled the trigger and didn't do it. <laughs> anyway, so that's, I guess, my, my Kraken's pick of the pod. Right on. The, the Star Wars video game that I don't own. I guess we're on to coming attractions. Tales of Tomorrow. Hour three, going into action. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, we, we're on a little... Considering how exhausted both of us are, we're still awake, so I guess there's that. People are going to be listening to this and be like, are they still seriously still talking? Good Lord. It's been much? about an hour since half of my, my cloth has collapsed. <laughs> so... <laughs> So coming attractions. So I have one that I, I kind of stumbled across yesterday that I hadn't heard of that looks really interesting. It's a movie. Um, it is coming out February 19th, and it's called Triple Nine. Ah, yes. Have you seen the trailer for that? Uh, no, I've seen that it exists, though. It looks really interesting. It's directed by John Hillcoat, who has not directed anything like this before. It's... He's directed The Proposition, Lawless, The Road, which are all, all right. kind of Nick Cavey type stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the plot of it is that a gang of criminals and corrupt cops plan the murder of a police officer in order to pull off their biggest heist yet across town, which is worded really funny. I, that's directly from IMDb, and it's kind of a strange wording. There's nothing as tense as a heist that's being plotted to go down across town. <laughs> right. <laughs> I wouldn't pull that shit in my, in my side of t- the track. Yeah. Those fucks over there. <laughs> and it stars, it's got a hell of a cast. It's got it uh, Kate Winslet playing a bad lady. Uh, Woody Harrelson's a cop. It's got the, the guy from The Martian that I can't pronounce. <laughs> Right. <laughs> I I honestly I think his name is Chiwetel Ejiofor. <laughs> I genuinely don't know. I should have watched a, like an interview where they pronounce his name or something. They would probably just go to yeah. They're like, and also the new star, this fella, <laughs> and it's got Norman Reedus and Anthony Mackie and Aaron Paul. It's got a great cast. the The trailer looks really interesting. It's got a lot of unique shots like like slow shots with exploding dye bags and shit that looks really interesting to me that is um you know i remember i saw some clips of production stills from it but i haven't watched the trailer yet mm. I'm excited about it. And I yeah, think, it looks uh, really cool. And the, the thing that really intrigues me about it is the director of it, everything else he's done has been like this slow burn, like almost Western vibe to it. Like Lawless was that. Right. Um, and then I don't know if you've ever seen The Proposition, but mm. it was it was excellent. But it was a very slow, like, 
I don't know. It's it's interesting to me how different this movie is from what else he's directed. I, I mean, like he's Mark done a lot Mark of music videos definitely. too, but and the then the, the is amazing. Yeah, it looks really interesting though. So that's my coming attraction that I'm excited about. I think it looks really cool. You know what? Speaking to your obvious Nigeria bias, your Nigeria, uh, whatever pro- the problem you have with this guy because you just can't pronounce his name, <laughs> extremely negative, and makes me a little uncomfortable. Um, so I think it's interesting. <laughs> Fuck that, you, you know, sir. Like, <laughs> I mean, sir. We will put this on pause. So um, what I think is interesting is actually I think he's an amazing actor. I love, I love him. And everything I love to listen to him. In. I like his voice. I like his mannerism. Yeah. I like his Lips. I like his lips and his eyes. Now, that said, <laughs> what I think is interesting is it's like that. It's almost midnight. Yes. So here's the thing. Uh, when all that stuff was going around that uh, Idris Elba could be the next Bond and should could right. he or should he be the next Bond and there was all this outrage. Well, that can't blah, blah, blah. Well, and, you know, I was definitely one that said that would be fucking amazing. I'd love it. Right, absolutely. Uh, I would love him as Bond. This actor, a Giafora, I don't know exactly how you pronounce the name, but yeah, he, um, <laughs> he, he was actually bandaged out as being a much better choice. If you were going to say, I'm going to go for an, an English-raised, non-white, non-white Anglo-Saxon um, character. Because he was born actor. in London, right? What's that? He was born in London, wasn't he? Uh, I know he went to school in London. I don't know if he was born. Uh, yeah, Forest Gate. Yeah. Right on. Yes. Okay. So anyway, I think of that, I think when you think about it from that perspective, you imagine him in a in a espionage role. Like I can imagine him being really interesting to watch. Uh, they, yeah, that would be really cool, actually. Yeah, I would be all over that. I, um, I think I would Eddie's, probably still prefer um, the Idris other guy, Idris Elba. Yeah, yeah, I think I prefer him as Bond, but well, it's hard for him to do anything wrong. Right, it really is. Like, like even just that that Mumford and Sons video where he plays the blind guy that can see again. <laughs> I I was fascinated by that video, and I didn't even know who Eater Selva was at the time. I was just like, this is an amazing music video, and this guy's kicking ass. <laughs> well, he's got such an he's got a really amazing presence. Have you watched any of the Luther stuff? Yes, it's very excellent. He's just he's super charismatic. Oh, it's. Chu Chuitle Edgeofor. Chuitle Edgeofor is his name. Like how how Idaho can you get? <laughs> You're sitting there rambling about the Hey, also, wait a minute, wait a minute. Also, he was the best part of Prometheus, one of the best parts of Prometheus. He was Idris excellent. Idris Elba. Yeah. I'm thinking about Idris Elba. I'm thinking about not only was he amazing as Luther, he was amazing right. in Pacific Rim, yes, um, and also think about his role in Thor as Heimdall. I mean, that's the most which is un- true. Yeah, that's the the, bo- the most boring character in the history of the Thor comics, right? I'm at the gate. I see a thing. Watch out! Right. And then <laughs> super badass. I loved it. <laughs> well, and I love yeah, his his charisma just totally carried that character into something you wanted to know more about him in. Well, and also all the fans, um, you know, it brought out all the racist comic readers, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, right. No black Asgardians. Oh, really? <laughs> there were no black people in that country. I mean, world or whatever. We don't know what Asgard is, but we don't like it. Space-time dimension or whatever <laughs> yeah. it's supposed to be. Um, going, going back to our favorite um, 
uh, uh, actor that you can't pronounce his name. Clearly, I don't know. <laughs> Um, let's not forget he's going to be Baron Mordo as well. Right, right. And which is funny because that's actually why I looked him up a couple days ago and commented to my wife that I didn't know how to pronounce his name. <laughs> it was because we saw some uh, kind of potato cam footage of him and uh, Benadryl Cummerbund out wandering around in while shooting the film. And she's like, who's who's that guy? And I was like, it's, it's that guy. I can't pronounce his name. <laughs> his name, by the way, his first name is pronounced Chuatel. Chuatel. His last name is pronounced Ejiofor. Ejiofor. That's according to uh, uh, Website X that may or may not be accurate. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Website X. <laughs> All right, so uh, coming attractions. Yes. Did we already talk about that? Uh, I did, but you haven't done yours yet. Triple Nine was mine, sir. Oh, it's late. There's bourbon. <laughs> okay, so um, so I have a few items. The first one is, um, I don't know, Chris, are you familiar with the product Hawaiian Dick? Yes, I adore Hawaiian Dick. You adore it? Are you, yes. Do you adore it as much as I adore it? I don't know if I adore it as much as you adore it. I love B. Claymore's work. I yes. love that series. I love the... Polynesian component to it. I love the 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 the, the genre. You of should it. note. You should possibly explain to our listeners that don't know Hawaiian Dick what that is first. So <laughs> Hawaiian Dick is a creator-owned series. Uh, it was published by Image. Um, it first started in the early two thousands, two thousand one, yeah. two thousand two, um, and it was a mini series, and then eventually was followed up by the Hawaiian Dick Last Resort, which was the big one, the one that people started paying attention to. But it's basically a hard-boiled, private eye story set in uh, the 50, in fifties Hawaii. And the art style is as much a part of this as the storytelling. The it's art's a, amazing. It's yeah, a lot of a lot of the work. There's been some different artists that have been, worked on the book, but um, you know, a lot of times it's been a watercolor treatment. It's a very lush, um, but also a very loose. Uh, dynamic style of work. Yeah, I love it. I yeah, love the that. colors. That, really great in it. It's got a lot of atmosphere. Yeah, B. Clay Moore and Stephen Griffin. So anyway, um, uh, he uh, recently did a, a Kickstarter. I think it was a Kickstarter campaign um, for a new version of Hawaiian Dick. Um, one of the you know they have those little pledge pledge levels where you get all these ex- this extra stuff, and so he's also giving. Um, People who pledge higher amounts, they could get access to some of his more recent compilations All right, of, of smaller of smaller stories of, of Hawaiian Dick. But this new series, which will be called Aloha Hawaiian Dick, um, Jacob Wyatt and Jason Armstrong are going to be doing the art. Hmm. And um, I think it looks great. And I'm just excited that they're still doing it. Yeah. As, as someone who likes um, uh, film noir and noir stories, as someone who likes um, you know interesting creator-owned art, um, and stuff that's set in different time periods. I mean, it just, it, right. I'm firing on all cylinders when I read that book. So I'm super excited about it. Well, that's one of the things I really liked about Hawaiian Dick and the, the original releases on it was how they took such a bright, festive, tropical location and added that noir element to it. It was just, it was really cool. It was like Magnum P.I. is written by Chandler or something like right. that, which I thought was right. really cool. One other thing I like about Hawaiian Dick is that the art attempts to portray a particular ethnic cultural group with an interesting 
diversity to it. Yeah. So uh, the the Hawaiian characters of you know the ethnic Hawaiians, let's say, are drawn in several different uh, body types and facial features and even skin colors. It's not your typical um, sort of homogenous stereotype of different cultures that right. you see in comics. It's, it's not something Luke I try to shouting do with "Sweet Christmas" and wearing a tiara. Yeah, sure. <laughs> it's something I try to do in my work with color and some visual cues. I like to try to imply different ethnicities, um, but even then, there are a million different variations within each ethnic group, even if they're um, fairly isolated and haven't been, you know, interwoven with other ethnic groups. So right. I think it's really interesting that there was a obviously very deliberate effort to show some complexity and nuance to the um, the Hawaiian people in this book yeah. beyond um, kind of the stereotypes that we've seen before. And I think that's very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I think shit, a lot of the stuff they did with that comic was just so unique. It's not something you see in a lot of other comic books in multiple different levels, not just the, the noir end of things and the detective and the setting and that kind of shit, but just the way that the people are handled and the, the, they were real people in it in a lot of ways, like the way they reacted to situations and shit, which I thought was really cool. I agree. Well, also light trails from, um, fifties cars too. And 40 yes. Cars. Yes. <laughs> So you said that they did a Kickstarter on it? Yeah, so it's been funded. And in fact, I think it's coming coming out pretty soon. I don't remember right exactly when, but um, <laughs> I definitely hopped on board that. So I'm looking forward to that. Nice. So I'll have to come down for Ape and read it then. <laughs> I, think that's a, I think that's a reasonable approach. You were going to take all my Preacher books and you left them here. Yeah, I totally spaced it. I don't know how I managed kids. to like, not get Preacher, but I'll have to track the rest of them down so I can catch up on it. My pre four year old was flipping through and looking at laughing at our space. I was like, well, that's not good. Guy with a penis cut in his head. So I made sure to lay that out right where somebody could find it then. Apparently, yeah. wherever yeah, you I left, left it. In the it. Top I don't even remember where I left the damn thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Let's, let's move on to just kicking down some contact us and where you can find us next. Um, I will be at Wizard World Reno in a couple weeks. Uh, it's at the Reno Sparks Convention Center, November 20th through the 22nd. I'm at an artist alley table. They still have not given us our table number, but I imagine I'll be somewhere off in the corner where nobody can find me because that's where they typically put me. Right. <laughs> uh, and your next appearance, sir, will be at the... San Francisco Comic Con, then? I don't know. See, it's up in the air because I may have an, maybe I'll have an occasion to come out and join you on one of the other cons right on. Uh, next year. But for sure, I'll do uh, uh, San Francisco Comic Con 2016 and then also Ape. And when uh, is the San Francisco one? It's like September, right? Yeah, right, okay. September. So we have a little bit of time to sort that out. But okay, yeah, cool. Um, otherwise, you're just going to see me around town just chilling. Right on. He's just trying to make a dollar chasing, a, chasing his toe-headed children. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, if you and would I'd like, like to contact us. In a future podcast, too. <laughs> well, and I'm hopefully bringing you back more occasionally and possibly more occasionally. That's great. <laughs> Less oftener. Me, me, I'm good English talking. <laughs> well, in the next half hour, you're going to meet a very unique breed of cat. The kind of man who doesn't know the meaning of the word fear. 
If you'd like to contact us, uh, you want to reach out to Slimy Tentacle, uh, you can reach me at Deeply Dapper. You can tweet me there. Uh, you can find me on Facebook. Deeply Dapper is also my username on Instagram, DeviantArt, Tumblr, pretty much any social madness site. You can also write me at DeeplyDapper at gmail.com. And if you have anything you'd like us to review or discuss, or if there's something you think we could do better or worse, let us know. And if you'd like to get a hold of Mr. Tom, how can they get a hold of you, sir? Uh, well, you can reach me similarly as Third Rail Design Lab on most of the social media stuff. Um, that's Third Rail, like a subway rail. It's a pretty <laughs> obvious metaphor. My good friend George Bush, once again, he used that in his one of his last speeches, one of his last State of the Unions or something. He he made some comment. He says, you know, I'm gonna. I'm going to touch the third rail of the new economy or something like that. And my, and my web traffic went out the roof. And I was like, what is happening? I didn't know because I wasn't, <laughs> I didn't listen to that speech. Right. Reasons. And then, you know, I was getting all this really crazy web traffic and I was getting a bunch of weird marketing inquiries and stuff. I'm like, right. what is going on? And it died down. But eventually I found out that it was because he made the reference to that metaphor. But third That's rail, funny. subway rail, electrical third rail. Right? Nice. Third rail design lab. Dot com. And my name is Tom. So you can reach me at the site or via email, Tom with an H at third rail design. I never mentioned that. Tom is with a Tom with an H. It's yeah, if you leave the H, I won't come and I'm Chris with a K, K-R-I-S, in case you were wondering about that too. You just made it complicated. <laughs> Alright, I think we've both stayed awake long enough for the evening. I've, I've, I've actually only had one beer, but I feel like I've had a lot more than that because I spent the whole day cutting wood out in the shed, so I'm excited. Well, I think it's also possibly the dust and ghosts coming out of that box behind It could you. be. It could be very well. That's just my Wi-Fi printer, dude. <laughs> <laughs> it's printing ghosts. <laughs> so anyway, this was our first Skype podcast. I think it went rather well for now until I go to check the file, and it's like, file deleted. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So it's about time to end this broadcast. Scrambled. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Your voice is, <laughs> Chris, I do a lot of conference calls with my uh, clients overseas. And uh, um, Indonesia, for example, has, uh, you know, they have famously poor infrastructure for um, communications. And so, you know, the best thing we can do is use something like GoToMeeting. And when it's going well, it's reasonably clear. And right. then the signal degrades because of traffic problems. Um, it goes straight up robot, Weird. and I've been in the middle of like <laughs> hot conference calls with serious decisions to be made, multi-million dollar decisions, and everyone's like, bleh, 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 bleh. Oh, no. <laughs> "That's awesome." <laughs> I'm trying to figure out my. I'm trying to like fire up a binary translator on my computer. <laughs> Did you say bleh, 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 bleh. I don't know. <laughs> That's fantastic. It's it's sort of like the uh, the architectural version of buffering. Nice. It's buffering. Just goes to yeah. robot. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that's a thing that happened. All right. I think it's about time to end this broadcast and sink into the depths. Thank you for listening to Deeply Dapper Dispatches. We'll see you next Wednesday. And now, folks, it's time to say good night. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night.